this episode, Justice League America number 40 and Justice League Europe number 16, cover dated July 1990. And welcome to the 40th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but guess what? I have brought along some friends. In fact, each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple issues of JLI. Now, we'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today is a fellow podcaster, an artist, a comic book enthusiast, and a lover of role-playing games. Like, he really loves role-playing games. Like, the rules, creating characters, the mechanics, creating more characters, the dice, modeling more characters. I'm pretty sure he sleeps with the old 1980s TSR Marvel superheroes role-playing game, like, under his pillow at night. Which, I, I mean, that's a little weird, but I do it too, so I guess it's not that bad. Anyway, folks, please help me welcome Dr. G, the man of nerdology. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Dr. G. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Thank you, Shag. I'm doing well. Just boom-tubed in from New Genesis. I guess it's true what they say, that you get together with people at weddings and funerals. Um, <laughs> and that usually is what brings people together who haven't seen each other in a while. So I guess my real question is, will there be an open bar at this wedding? Ooh, uh, a little awkward. I think you might have that backwards a bit. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just feel our way through it. How's that sound? Oh, I feel like I have a whole host of jokes I might need to rewrite very quickly. <laughs> And it has been a while. I mean, I, I was in Arizona back in, I can't remember whether it was, it must have been 2018 or maybe it was 2019. I really can't remember. Either way, it's been a couple of years since we've seen each other. So it's great to talk to you, man. It's been a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I love this series. I can't wait to talk. I'm so happy you brought me in on this very emotional <laughs> episode of the JLI. Yeah, so it's not Comedy Central. <laughs> well, I knew when I was picking guests for the Despero saga, I had to pick the big guns. So uh, I had to be sure to bring in uh, a real ringer for the closer here, sir. All right. Well, I will do my best. That's code for don't screw this up and disappoint me. <gasps> not disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, uh, we do have a lot to talk about with this issue, but before we do that, we need to take a second to thank our sponsors. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, uh, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into this month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. I kind of failed in that mission this time, but... I, I I'll get there in a roundabout way. So what I, this issue features the funeral of Mr. Miracle. No, no spoilers there. It's on the cover, folks. And I went looking for the Death of Superman trade paperback. I thought that would be a or, or the funeral for a friend trade paperback. Either one. I thought that would be a really good one to cover. Well, I couldn't find it. It's not currently available on in stock trades. Uh, and then it kind of led me down this rabbit hole of following the creators that were associated with Death of Superman. So I stumbled upon something with Carl Castle and Tom Grummet, both who worked on that uh, collection of series, and. 
it's Section Zero, Trade Paperback, Volume One. There is no Section Zero. And uh, I am very familiar with this book. In fact, I kickstarted this book. Uh, I love it that much. It's absolutely phenomenal. It is sort of like a, a Fantastic Four meets Challengers of the Unknown, meet people out fighting monsters. It is absolutely glorious. Written by Carl Kiesel, art by Tom Grummet. It is gorgeous. It is fun. It is adventurous. Uh, it's got all kinds of pinups in there from a gr- bunch of great folks. This collects Section Zero, one through six. Uh, it's 216 pages. It's full color, soft cover. It normally retails for $19.99. You can get it for 42% off right now, so it's $11.59. And seriously, it, this gets my full endorsement. It is an absolute blast, and I'm so glad I got in on it early. And uh, I'm, I'm following the, the following Kickstarters as well. It's just that good. Now, Dr. G, this is the part of the show where the quality guests uh, bring their own pick for in-stock trades. Did you happen to uh, live up to that standard? I hope I did. I did bring a recommendation. Woohoo! Uh, to, to preface, I, I chose this because since it is the funeral and the death of Mr. Miracle in this issue that we're, we're dealing with, I thought I would do something related to the creator of Mr. Miracle. Jack Kirby. So my recommendation is Jack Kirby, Epic Life of the King of Comics, hardcover graphic novel. This is created by Tom Scholdley. So it's told in graphic novel form by a groundbreaking Eisner winning nominated creator. I love this book. I, I recently got it. It's Kirby's life in the best way you could do it as a comic told as a comic and I'm told by actually one of my favorite artists, Tom Scioli. I highly recommend it. It, if you're not really familiar about like that history behind what goes into the making of these comics and, and the people who, who made these comics, you know, who were, were seen still, you know, we see a lot of movies about their stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as of late. This is an excellent sort of like kind of look at their lives. So I highly recommend it. So normally, though, I, it looks like this comes in normally at twenty eight ninety nine, but. On this one, it is $21.74, so saving of 25%. That sounds absolutely awesome. When you were talking about it before you started recording, I didn't realize it was a graphic representation of his, you know, a biography in comic book form. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. That is really, really cool. Yeah, no, I highly recommend it to anyone who who's, wants to know about the life of Jack Kirby. I hope there's lots of Nazi punching, or at least that story about where the Nazis were in the, the lobby and he was went down there to go punch the crap out of him. I hope oh, no, yeah. Him. He's a scrapper, you know. There's a lot of, like, him being a scrapper, and they talk a lot about him actually in World War II, so all part of the soup. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com and tell them the Firewater Podcast Network sent you. Now, also, uh, we need to take a second to thank our sponsors over at Patreon, because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a whole bunch of online hosting and other services. A while back, we asked for some help from the listeners, and you guys really, really came through, and we sincerely appreciate it. Without your help, we would not still be on the air. So, folks, if you're enjoying the GLI podcast, please go out and visit our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the network while you're there. And we sincerely appreciate everyone's support, and at certain tiers, you get thanked on your show of choice. These folks requested to be thanked on the JLI podcast, so our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Max Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gustavo, Sean Ross, hey wait, I think you know that guy, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon 
Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks. Now, here it is. Justice League America, number 40. The end of the Despero saga. An incredibly emotionally powerful issue. I've already heard from some of you guys in advance that the, this was going to bring you to tears. So I want to hear more from you. Go out on the social medias. Use our hashtag, poundfwpodcast. Tag us at JLI Podcast. Share your thoughts on this issue. And I, it, we just want to hear from you. Be part of this community because it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Now, Dr. G, I got to ask, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? What made you fall in love with it? And uh, I'm interested to know. Ooh, so this was one I definitely caught like a little after the fact. For me, this was all back issues that mm-hmm. I, I came to JLI, but it started with Legends. Mm. Uh, I picked up the the Legends series because I was a real. I'm a John Byrne Mark. So. <laughs> Who is it? Really? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm of that era, and you know, and this was his move to DC. You know, so right in that like Man of Steel era, I definitely had to grab it, loved it, and then I got the trade paperback for the the New Beginnings trade paperback. The, I think like one of the first printings, or maybe the second printing of it, mm-hmm. and then I got the next trade. Then from there, it was all picking up in bargain back issue bins. So yeah, yeah, you know, I wasn't getting them bagged and boarded. It was very much like on a hunt, and I have to say, I, I do kind of miss that a lot as a comic book reader now because I read a lot of digital comics at this point, mm-hmm. uh, just mainly for the space. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand that, <laughs> um, and it, and so I, I kind of miss that sort of like. You know, as the, as the Ferengis would say, the great material continuum will <laughs> eventually bring those books to you if you look hard enough and if you spend enough gold press latinum. <laughs> That's perfect. That's a, that's a good descriptor because you're right. When you'd go to those uh, discount, but I mean, there's still some in places, but mm-hmm. you, start, you start flipping through them and you don't, you have no idea what you're going to get. And you always find some kind of gem. And, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s, these JLI books, they lived in those discount bins. And if you were like me and couldn't say no to like those discount bins, and if there wasn't anything good, suddenly you're like, well, I guess I'm collecting this series now. <laughs> Instead of saying no and buying something else. No, I had to. I had to get it. I had to get it. <laughs> I got to tell you, one of my favorite comic shopping experiences was with you when we visited and had dinner. And we went to that amazing comic shop. And they had that. And, and I know they've closed since then. But we went to. And they had that annex. And they had all those just discount bins and stuff that had been packaged together in runs. It was just glorious. I loved it. Yeah. I still look longingly out a window at it. Uh, <laughs> thinking thinking. Of about it from time to time. <laughs> I still have one of the bundles of uh, Who's Who, the loose leaf Who's Who sitting right here next to my desk that I bought when I was with you guys. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah. excellent. I love yeah. it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I know. I miss that place. But luckily, it trucks on. There's... <laughs> Still other great LCSs in town, so. Awesome. And next time I'm in town, you're going to have to show me where all the discount bins are. We'll go looking for some fun stuff. Yeah, I know. There's definitely a few. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm kind of relearning it myself now that I lost the one place I, I would always go to closed. And I was like, oh, I got to research <laughs> and, and find a new one. I think I have a guy who knows a place, so. <laughs> well, after a year of being at home, too, it's all about relearning those skill sets. So oh, Yes. Yes. Grooming. <laughs> yep. Talking to people. <laughs> 
Well, you didn't have the grooming thing down before, so that's not different. Uh, see, it, it was to my advantage <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, let's get into this, folks. So Justice League America, number 40. Uh, again, as always, you can go out to our website. We have an image gallery there. We'll post some of the pages from these issues. But come on, folks, if you don't own the issue, again, go to a discount bin. Get the omnibus. Buy it digitally. Go find the single issue. Read it on DC Infinite. It's freaking everywhere. Read this thing already. So it is Just Like America number 40 by DC Comics, cover dated July 1990, on the shelves May 15th, 1990. Cover price is $1, four shiny quarters, and the cover is by Adam Hughes. So, uh, Dr. G, would you care to describe the cover? Oh, happily. The cover to Justice League of America 40 has a weeping angel gravestone with flowers of mourning around its base and the placard inscription, Mr. Miracle, R.I.P., in the center foreground. And then the heroes of the JLA and the JLI are walking away in the background behind the tombstone as if the the funeral services are over. Yeah. Ugh. Very powerful cover. What strikes you about the cover the most? One of the things that really drew my eye is that how they they kind of like placed like Batman and Superman on either side of the tombstone. But mm. I also like the fact that they're last. And it's kind of like placing them last so you see them. But it also then implies that like they were the last to leave the funeral. So like lingered the most. That's oh. really interesting. I did not pick up on that. Wow. There's some meaning behind that there, definitely, as sort of the, the pillars of the DC universe. Yes. Uh, you know, when you mentioned the, the Batman and Superman there, you know, you also see there's two particular bits of body language which would jump out at me. Is uh, Next to Batman is Blue Beetle, and his mm-hmm. head is hung low, and his hands are behind his back. I mean, it just tells you the whole story right there from the back of Blue Beetle. And then you see on the other side, next to Superman, uh, Fire actually has her arm around ice as if to support her. And uh, it's just, wow. And yeah. then the body... And, language of the angel statue itself how it's kneeling on one knee and it's got his head in his hands it's i'm getting choked up just looking at it it's just so powerful well you know gotta keep an eye on that angel don't blink at it (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) all right so that's to be fair so this is not a weeping angel so uh just you just look at the cover you whovian nerds you'll you'll figure it all out so Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh it is really exceptionally well laid out yeah i know adam hughes in on the inside would always work from layouts from giffen so i don't know what the deal with the covers were but Whoever did the layout for this cover, it's, I mean, I'm, again, I'm just going to attribute it to Hughes. It's just so powerful. So incredibly powerful. All right, let's get into this, folks. Inside, the plot is by Keith Giffen, script by James DiMatteis, pencils by Adam Hughes, inker Jose Marzan Jr., letters Bob LaPan, colors to Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, and editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Hell on Earth. You want to start us off, Dr. G? Gladly. All right. The battle with Despero has taken a terrible turn. Just moments earlier, Despero destroyed the Justice League shuttle with Mr. Miracle at the helm. With most of the Justice League incapacitated by the Space Tyrant's attacks, now Blue Beetle finds himself alone against Despero, with the alien choking the life out of him, which I'm sure a lot of people also wanted to do from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, arrives at the scene, ready to face the murderous Despero for the second time in this fight. Unfortunately, the encounter with Despero goes as well as the previous one, as Despero crushes Blue Beetle's head before joining combat with John. While one of the strongest members of the Justice League, John proves no match for Despero's rage, filled might, or his third eye attack. After a brief and physical struggle, the Martian Manhunter is slain as Despero's third eye attack causes John's head to explode. Enraged by the loss of her teammates, a recovered fire presses her flaming attack on Despero. Beatrice is out for blood, but so is Despero, and in the end, her rage is no match for his hate. 
With super strength hand clap, Despero creates a shockwave that completely extinguishes Beatrice's fiery form, thus slaying another member of the Justice League. With no more opposition to stand in his way, Despero unleashes the full power of his hate. His power explodes outward, consuming all in its path in a hate-filled firestorm. It sweeps through New York City, destroying the city as it expands. Eventually, Despero's rage consumes the entirety of the planet and himself. The Mad Alien's revenge against the Justice League and the planet they protect is complete. Or is it? With the flaming form of Despero falling back to seemingly undamaged Earth, we quickly return to New York to the field of battle, where we find that our heroes are not dead. As Blue Beetle asks why Despero, in his moment of triumph, stopped everything and then flew away, John explains what transpired. John used the Martian telepathic power of Mayavana to meld minds with Despero and grant him his greatest wish. This power is considered a gift because the strain of its usage means a Martian can only perform it once. It's normally reserved for those you love. John sacrificed this gift to save his family of choice, the Justice League. As fire searches for ice in the rubble and guys itching for a fight that's now over, an inert, embryonic Despero lands on the battlefield from its fall from the space as Blue Beetle laments that his friend, Scott Free, Mr. Miracle, is dead. I'll take it from there. So after the battle, when everyone is returned to the embassy, the sobering truth begins to sink in. Maxwell Lord and Marsh Manhunter discuss how Despero has devolved into this fetus-like state uh, with an unformed consciousness, which appears to be happy. And then Max begins to make the funeral arrangements for Scott Free, Mr. Miracle. Blue Beetle's taking it very hard and verbally lashes out in anger at Ice when she tries to help him. And we jump forward to the funeral itself. The entire league is present. Most of the team are dressed in the typical black attire. Martian Manhunter and Batman are wearing their costumes, as well as numerous other mourners from the superhuman community. There's a moving service celebrating Scott Free as a person and as a hero. And after the service, Big Barda walks up and punches, or possibly shoves, Maxwell Lord, knocking him to the ground. She yells, all we ever wanted was a simple life. No more fighting. No more madness. But you, you and your damned league. Blue Beetle later spies Booster Gold at the funeral and approaches to make peace after their recent disagreements. However, Beetle walks up on Booster conducting business at the funeral. Booster's trying to recruit Gypsy to a new superhero team. Beetle is furious and punches Booster to the ground. Booster realizes how cold and heartless his actions were. Later, Guy Gardner and Ice share a supportive moment for each other, and we actually see Guy Gardner trying to cope with his own sadness. Superman approaches Batman to discuss how the League needs a heavy hitter, but Batman is cold and spiteful towards the Man of Steel. Even later, Maxwell Lord latches onto the idea that they need to add team members to bolster their strength. He says, I swear to you, I'll disband this team rather than see another of my friends die. Finally, at Mr. Miracle's graveside, a fellow new god, Orion, speaks to his fallen brother's grave and decides to follow in Miracle's footsteps and visit the Justice League. Next issue, Maximum Strength. Oof, man. Uh, we'll get into this in a second, but folks, I'm going to put it right on Front Street. This issue, uh, especially the back half, was an extreme emotional roller coaster for me. I've read this thing several times now. I have cried my eyes out like a baby through most of it. I will freely admit that. I'll, I'll tell you when and where it happens. But man, this thing was just uh, powerful, really powerful. So, uh, Dr. G, why don't you tell me your thoughts on the issue? First off, I actually got a comment on the version that I'm looking at. Sure. So, as I kind of explained in the intros, I had a mostly complete run, but like I still had issues that were spaced out and I like, didn't have. And mm-hmm. this was one of them. So, this reading was my really my actual like, first reading of this of wow. the story. But I had I had the rest of the Despero art. Mm-hmm. It was kind 
kind of aggravating. I think I got a lot of these in like one batch after like picking through some used bins for a while and they were always like three of a four issue arc and then missing one of them. Okay. Uh, sure, <laughs> so, sure. So I got all of these almost complete stories and just missing one part and then I filled it in with, as you mentioned, I, my love role playing games with the um, Justice League supplement for the second edition of the DC Heroes game. Oh, that's fantastic. The Mayfair one with the yeah, Kevin Guard so cover? That was ostensibly like my DC wiki before wikis <laughs> existed. Sure. You know? Yeah, no, that, that makes the, perfect sense. And so I'm reading in digital one of the first things that really struck me is how the colors and and so you said that in uh off mike you were telling me that in a previous episode you guys had noticed that they kept the same color error yeah in the digital version from the original so what that tells us is that they must be using the original color codes for the the screens for the original printing process um and they just like moved it over digital and reproduced the color but it's also like really heavily saturated which is more than it would have looked like in the original print version, which was on newsprint. Um, so it looks like a Baxter copy. It, mm. um, when mm-hmm. the Baxter paper first came out, a lot of the colorists hadn't figured out that they had to like tone back their colors now. Since they were printing on really white paper and not gray paper that's newsprint, the gray paper normally brought the color down naturally. Sure. And so it always muted the color enough that it didn't like kind of burn out your retina. Um, <laughs> because... This is an aggressive, like, pink on the sparrow. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when he's powered up. Uh, Yeah. And in a good way, because it's like, it made it feel so much more 80s and 90s. Like, late 80s, heavy, pastel, neon colors and stuff like that. It really made it feel that way. It's one of those things that normally I'm not always happy with when they recolor or the colors doesn't, like, different from those original versions. But I like how bright it is. And then it becomes very somber. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so there's also like a really color-wise, there's a real tonal shift too, because everyone's basically wearing black through like most of the last part of it. In fact, all of the panels get a black border as well. I did not notice that. That is very interesting. You're right. Starting with page 12, after they're done with Despero, you're right. Everything gets black borders. I didn't even pick up on that. As soon as they're basically talking about the funeral and talking about making arrangements, it's black border. So it's interesting. So it gives it like, it makes it feel a lot like two books too. In, in that way as well because you know the gutters are the black gutters are versus the white gutters there's very much a normal superhero adventure in the first half of this mm-hmm. and then the second half is an episode of LA Law okay uh, <laughs> it, different kind of comparison but I get it well the thing that I I'm, I'm love the most about the writing of the series and, and with a much of like older eye looking at this now than, you know when I was like in my teens kind of read through the series the first time even my 20s at that point there was a heavy like not just sitcom but I think also like and I, I said LA law because there's a lot of like people in suits in this episode <laughs> well sure and, and well I mean it's 1990 that's you know you're yeah. not far off on the time frame so yeah yeah they're writing that show as well in mm-hmm. this book and that's I think one of the strengths of the book you got perfect strangers <laughs> in, in many ways in, in a lot of ish episodes or like my two dads <laughs> and, and I love how they meld those plots and I think this is one of those this is like the funeral episode of either comedy or well of a comedy show this would be like a funeral episode of Night Court yeah no it's, it absolutely is I mean it's and I've been saying this since we started this podcast series is you love these characters because you 
laugh with them. And then when something serious happens, you feel it that much more because it's such a tonal shift and it hurts that much more, especially because uh, the expert writing that you've got here too. I think in particular, Beatles' reaction to the whole thing is is probably, you know, for, felt the most real to me because I also remember him being the one, want, you know, like everyone else was knocked out when Mr. Miracle gets killed. Mm-hmm. And so he's the one who sees it happen. And then, of course, they, they get into his like later that he feels his guilt over kind of trying to reassert himself because I remember when he was always pressing the buttons <laughs> in the background and right. kind of like stopping as much of an action hero. He has this sort of like trying to get back on the horse, which uh, again, another reason why I've always liked Beetle too. I read a bunch of the original Beetle series. He was the hot stuff. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. He was the new hotness. Then he got into a sitcom and got a dad bod. <laughs> That is all absolutely correct. Oh, <laughs> uh, that casting over at NBC. <laughs> so, actually, that's a question I have for you. Through all these issues, what network was this show on, if it were a show with live actors? I think you hit it. For this time frame, which is the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, NBC kind of ruled the the, the network. Uh, I mean, CBS certainly had its own appeal. ABC had its own appeal. But as far as I was at least aware growing up, uh, and I did grow up with Arbitron and Nielsen books on my coffee table at home because both my parents were worked in television, so I'm a bit biased. Ah, but uh, NBC really ruled the roost, especially for, you know, primetime shows. So I could see this, you know, definitely being a Thursday night lineup show, uh, like go doing that exact lead-in from maybe the night court spot into, you know, the, the L.A. law spot. So you get the drama and the comedy. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can see it, too, because especially since they're in New York. So yeah. NBC kind of has, like, the, you know, the shared New York-verse that works. That works. <laughs> so a couple of other things I, I had as notes on this. I really enjoyed the Sparrow look throughout this whole arc. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really simple. It's color-wise. It's really striking. But that cape made of the UN flag that's all tattered and torn is such a nice design element. That, you know, it gives them like all this extra character than just being like a basically a big Incredible Hulk. Yeah. And so that I thought was a really good part about this. Despero is definitely doing his best role in Demrick. <laughs> that was the wish he wanted fulfilled the most. Okay. His Roland Emmerich moment of like, I don't know what Roland Emmerich has against the earth, but he loves blowing it up. That is true. That <laughs> is absolutely true. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, dude, it's where I keep my stuff. Don't blow it up anymore. Right. Well, I, I got a quick comment on the Despero artwork. Mm-hmm. And I cannot, I'm going someone's writing in the comments already because I can't remember the character's name. But there's a character in Steve Rude, Mike Barron's Nexus that looks a little bit like Despero's oh, face. Judo Maccabee. Is that okay? I blank in terms. The the thune, he's a thune because he's got like a big mohawk. Yes, yes, thank you. But he's got like kind of like ape-like features. Yeah, so I I feel like Despero, I'm I'm not saying Adam Hughes stole the look from it, I'm just saying that's the only other character I could think of in comics, and it's a lot of it's the jawline and the mouth and things like that. There's a little bit of similarity, and I mean, they're both fantastic looks from uh, this era. Yeah, so I definitely have to say that Despero, though, has a lot of issues to work through. (laughs) (laughs) But luckily he will. And it's so funny, too, that little like fetal despero falling to the ground as I refer to as Chekhov's gun of an alien fetus. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> like, you will be going off in the future. I see you, Chris Claremont, hiding in the background somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a weird question that I, I kind of was thinking about as we were going through this. It's about the Mayavana trick he uses. Yeah. And, and it's like, you're supposed to give it to someone you love. It's like, he didn't give that to his wife. 
right. ahead of time. So was it – I mean, it could also be like they do it at the end of their lives or you give it to one of your children. Yeah, like, yeah. You wait until the right moment to use it. But it is a little sad. It's like, oh, but he had like a wife and kids. And I think that's kind of what it is, is that sort of like all of us in life, we don't think to say the things we need to say to the people we love and we wait until they're gone. And I think this is one of those cases where he always thought he'd have more time. And then I guess it was a plague or or whatever it was that, you know, that wiped out all the Martians. He just didn't have the time to share it with her, I would think. Um, I wanted to talk about that, that, the Mayavana thing. I did a little research on this. So I started digging because I had a suspicion. So I couldn't find anything exactly with the Mayavana spelling because it's obviously a a Martian idea. However, I did find something called Mayayana, which is a very similar spelling, just a couple of different letters. And it's one of the two main existing branches of Buddhism uh, developed in India. India. And where this comes into play is J.M.D. Mateus is a follower of Indian philosophies and often quotes Buddha. So I got to think when D. Mateus was putting this together, he didn't pick that term by accident. You know, it's a term full of love and, and kindness and joy for your fellow beings. I mean, that's that's right in line with his philosophy. So I think that's kind of a beautiful thing that he worked into the story. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure he imagines that there's like kind of like space Buddha. Like, which I think would be awesome, Space Buddha, as as an Indian myself. I, I think that's a, amazing. Manifest across the cosmos, as it were. Read his uh, his Doctor Fate store, a uh, twenty four issue run sometime if you want some really powerful spiritual uh, connections to superheroes. It's it's amazing. Oh, excellent! So again, this was like a missing piece of my Justice League International era headcanon. Right, um, and I definitely have to say that I I really did enjoy the the Guy Gardner sequence with Ice. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like seeing that sequence made me you know look at Guy Gardner and go, "I did you wrong, sir. I misjudged you." <laughs> Well, because I went through that, too. I don't think we ever misjudged him because he is a terrible person. I mean, I misjudged that he isn't effectively like a victim of his own. Yes, he is, he is also human. So yeah. and he also can hurt. So that was what that why that was so powerful. Now, I'm curious, as someone who's just reading this for the first time, did this move you emotionally? Did it affect you? Were there tears? Was it just more like, oh, wow, that was nice. You know, tell me. Tell me more. Here. So I, I have to say that. Knowing kind of how the outcomes of these, I didn't feel as moved. I mean, there were times where I was like, oh, I, I could definitely feel how that this is a bad thing that they're feeling. Like, you know, like Barda, definitely I could see Oof. you know her whole thing. Like, I get her idea in particular the most because she was like, we were literally trying not to do any of these things. Right. And and you, this is what you've done to my husband. And, and she's like, you're lucky I haven't murdered you. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and that's one of my comments is when she – she must not have punched him. Even though it says pow, she must have shoved him to the ground because otherwise if she had punched him, his face would have collapsed. I mean she yeah. would have killed him. So, I mean that actually shows a tremendous amount of restraint on her part. I know this is kind of like they're definitely going to – they're dealing well with grief here. But like I don't know. The, the Batman-Superman interaction was like odd to me. So, so for just to fill you in, folks, what happens is ba- Batman is on the side of a building, as he is wont to do. Superman comes up to chat with him, and Batman is a complete dick to Superman. I mean, just a straight-up jerk. I mean, he's like, what do you want? And, he, and Superman's trying to talk to him, and Batman's like, I don't care. I don't want to talk to you. I just buried my friend. I'm not in a good mood. And Superman's legitimately concerned about the league and Batman's just like you know F off basically so yeah. uh, it, it, 
tell me your questions. I think it's actually good writing from the point of view of like someone who's dealing with with grief and like a stage of grief. And this is why he's kind of lashing out. But it's just also like not how I see Batman (laughs) in some ways. But this is also that weird, heavy, frenemy, heavy on the enemy (laughs) Batman, (laughs) Superman era of relationships. It's kind of understandable at the time. I'm in the completely opposite position of you on Mm -hmm. this page. Uh, I think this page is brilliant in so many ways. For starters, you're right. This is not the pre-crisis best friends kind of relationship. This is definitely post-crisis. Now, they have had some like Dark Knight over Metropolis storyline. So they have teamed up. They have made connections. So uh, they're not, you know, the world's finest, but they have definitely worked together. Uh, What makes this page work for, and by the way, this is one of the pages that brought me to tears. Uh, What makes this work so well for me is this is an incredibly realistic depiction of one friend being a complete jerk to another friend simply because they're hurting. We don't see Batman emotional very often, other than like anger. You know, we don't see him saddened. You know, if you're not talking about the death of Jason Todd, you pretty much don't get emotion out of Batman. So this is about as close as you get to him having an emotional reaction of loss. And reading this, I mean, legitimately, I could see myself doing this to a close friend who's trying to reach out and help me and me basically telling them, get out of my face because right now I'm upset. And so this this page reads so honest to me. And I, I can see your position, but that's how I, I see it. I view it as completely honest and a real friendship reaction. Oh, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it reads against what I normally expect of Batman, but not that it's bad writing. Well, I'm going to blaze through some of my comments. I'm going to try and compartmentalize it here because the, the story is so different from yeah. know, page 1 to 11 and 12 to, to 22. So just start start off about the first part. You know, the question is, at what point did this issue become a dream in Despero's mind? Because, you know, Despero just viciously murders, you know, Blue Beetle. He viciously murders Martian Manhunter, all that stuff. So obviously that didn't really happen. That's in his mind. You know, that's all on page two, panel four is where that starts. So at what point did it become a dream? You know, was it before we even opened the issue? Or was it like the panel before? I just, I didn't know if there was a clear delineation of when it all became a dream. I don't know if you saw it or if I, you know, I'm just looking for something that's not there. Yeah, I think it's when basically in the panel, like right before he squishes <laughs> Blue Beetle's head. That's pretty much uh, what happens, yeah. I think it's from that moment on is the the dream. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because that's the only one that kind of makes sense. Or like you said, like he's already done it. He's already blasted him in the interim between the issues. And so the episode opens already in the dream. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear you folks at home what your thoughts are, too. Because, yeah, I could totally see it being that panel right before it, you know, because yeah. there's a close-up on Martian Manhunter's face. They talk about how uh, Martian Manhunter is coming at him with love, you know, so interesting. Yeah. Then uh, I, I huge props to Adam Hughes. I mean, they gave him lots of room in this issue to draw massive spat, splash pages of the Earth just being destroyed, where they could have used those pages for more funeral action. But instead, they said, you know what, Adam, go to town, draw me just a whole splash page, a couple of them, actually of just the earth on fire and boy did he deliver it's just so powerful and just another chance for him to draw something different than just people's faces he gets to draw you know the brooklyn bridge melting the planet earth on fire i mean it's just gorgeous just wow yeah no it's it's a nice piece and you know hats off to the colorists on this they did some really good color work i mean it, it feels like it's burning because of the color 
Yeah. Like the the yellows and the pinks that they get to use in this and it's just like like yeah, that looks hot. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you mentioned Chekhov's fetus because uh, that is also sort of how we started off uh, a few issues back. Despera started off in that sort of fetus position uh, or fetus uh, inversion and then grew into what he became. So yeah, yeah. all, all kind of connected. Now, jumping into the second half of the book. So the, the first half, first of all, is absolutely great. The, the Mayahana concept, Marshman are giving Despero that gift out of love for his friends. I mean, that was touching and that was beautiful. It really was. However, for me, the first half of the story is just completely overshadowed and and almost kind of forgotten, sadly, simply because the second half is so moving and so powerful. Again, maybe I'm just bringing what I have inside of me to it, but I just the second half is it's all I can think about right now. Uh, I, I truly think this, and I, I hope I'm not overstating things here, but I think this might just be uh, J.M. DeMatteis' best writing uh, of an emotional superhero work. Now, I'm I'm not talking about his non-superhero work, because some of that stuff's unbelievable. But as far as just really tapping into the emotions in a superhero comic, I I think this might be the best. It's, It's that powerful to me. Yeah, you know, I have to say he got some great work out of Adam Hughes on this one, too, because mm-hmm. he's doing some pretty good photo referencing. There's some like beautiful pieces of, of with ice in particular. I'm looking at the sequence with her, with Beetle, and then she also has that sequence later with Guy. And I mm-hmm. think in both of those, which is interesting, it's nice to see that like they, they gave her specifically an arc to comfort both of those team members. Right. Well, these these folks were more than a team. They were family. I mean, they oh, lived yeah. together. They lived under the same roof together. They they did everything together. But they were just written more so than any league I can think of as a family. Was it like a full house? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you got the right time frame, though. <laughs> I know. I know. Now, this is not really intended as a dig, but mm-hmm. it may sound that way. I really feel like this comic has such an emotional punch for a superhero funeral that uh, – I don't recall Superman's funeral and Funeral for a Friend moving me nearly as much as this did. And, and now that is, of course, triggered Michael Bailey to write me an angry letter, as, as you know. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's, again, so powerful. And here's the surprising thing is, like, we, the reader, already know that Mr. Miracle's not actually dead. We know that it was a robot that died. Now, they don't they don't acknowledge that anywhere in these issues. They don't come right out and say it. But we know because, first of all, there's a Mr. Miracle book on the shelf uh, already. And we saw Mr. Miracle get switched out for a robot in Just League International Special Number 2. So it's astonishing that they can still bring us to tears. Or maybe not you, me. Bring me <laughs> to tears. Even though I know he's not even dead. That's just how good the writing is. You know, that is a part of it that kind of like kills it for me. Okay. Okay. Especially since that it's up in these the last four episodes, issues, I should say, he's clearly been like a robot that's like not really well programmed. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. And everyone's like, you keep repeating that. Yeah. But they're so busy, obviously, dealing with these other threats that it's kind of like they don't notice. And so there's a certain amount of like in this emotional, like really well, um, well written emotional section, especially like, I mean, hats off to making sure that the priest looks like Jack Kirby. That is so amazing. Probably should have been a rabbi, but. <laughs> that 
that, to, by the way, that made me cry uh, when yeah. I when I saw when I realized it was Jack Kirby. Yeah, I know that. So I thought that was really good. But but he's this robot. But surviving your own funeral because it was really a robot replacement of you does seem to be on brand for the greatest escape artist in the universe. <laughs> it's true. You know, if anyone could escape death, it would be Mr. Miracle, which I guess is the whole premise of the Tom King series. But uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely on brand for him. Oh, this is definitely a hurt feelings joke down the line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, he's alive. I, I have not read that far ahead yet, so I am really looking forward to getting to the point where they're all like hugging him and punching him at the same time. I would imagine. I don't remember. I don't want to know. I want to. I want to get there yeah. when I get there. So now, prior to this Despero storyline, I mean, the only Justice League or deaths that had happened since the team's creation in the '60s was Vibe. You know, that was it. Steel had been you know viciously injured uh, and was on life support, but he died in this Despero story, and now Mister Miracle at least is believed to be dead. So. I mean, this is this is a big thing for the Justice League. This kind of thing happens over in X Men books, not over in Justice League. So this yeah. was a, this was a big deal. So now now I'll get into some of the tearjerker stuff here. So page thirteen, when uh, you mentioned it a minute ago, Ice is trying to comfort Blue Beetle. And she can't get his attention. So she calls him Ted, which may seem like nothing. But that's one of the things in, in this reread we've noticed during the podcast is the Justice League America characters almost never call each other by their real name. Uh, other mm. than Jean, everybody's Ice, Fire, Beetle, Booster. No one goes by their real names for the most part. So the fact that she has to call him Ted to get his attention speaks volumes. And this page is just beautiful. And how... He's so mad and he's so angry and he's, it, there's no exclamation points, but he's just hurt and she's trying to be nice and he just throws it back in her face. You know, she says, because the only thing I need right now is my friend back. Can you help me with that one? And she's like, you know, I can't because then I'll see you later. And he storms off and it's just like, God, it, I get it though, but it's just powerful. Yeah. Uh, that brought me to tears. <laughs> I can see why it. This last year, I'm sure a lot of people had to deal with grief. This has got to definitely hit or seeing people go through all of these and or going through them yourself, you know. Well, if, if anyone's ever lost anyone, uh, whether it's pandemic or not, I mean, you've you've lived through all of these these things. Yeah, yeah. I'll jump ahead a little bit to, to mention this. I something I noticed in rereading this last night that I never picked up on before. And I've already, if, if you've already seen this on social media, I apologize. A lot of people have been sharing it. J.M.D. Mateus and possibly Keith Giffen, I'm not sure, really managed to demonstrate the five stages of grief in this issue. I did not realize that until I reread it last night, that he they very specifically put all five stages in just these last 12 pages. You start with denial. Blue Beetle says it. He says, I tried to forget that Scott is dead. He tried to deny it. Then you get into anger, where a beetle's lashing out at ice. And then Big Barda punching Max. There's your anger. Bargaining. And I had to look up a couple definitions of bargaining on what the definition is. And basically, some of it is, if only if I had done this, things could be different. But it's also, how is this not going to happen to me again? And so you get that kind of bargaining. You get Booster Gold and Max, well, Lord, both talking about recruiting members. And the whole point of that is promising a better future so this can't happen again. They're bargaining. You get depression. The page between Guy and Ice, you mentioned it already. I got a couple more notes on it myself. That scene of literally Guy going through depression and Ice comforting him, even though he's there pretending to comfort her, she's comforting him. And then finally, acceptance. Uh, Orion at Mr. Miracle's grave, he has accepted the loss of Mr. Miracle and has accepted that as a path forward. Dimiteus very purposely put in here the the five stages of grief. And I just, I once I realized that was in there, I was just blown away. Oh, yeah. I'll be honest, I hadn't noticed it myself. But then when you lay it out that way, it's definitely so obvious. Everyone really, I think, as we talked earlier, I mean, effectively Batman's kind of doing that. His denial in that sense is more like denial of friendship. 
Like, mm. like you and me, Superman, we aren't friends. That way I don't have to feel bad if something bad happens to you. Yeah. That's his kind of denial defense mechanism. It could also be anger. I mean, e- yes. really, either one would fit in that scene. Yeah. But isn't he kind of always angry a little bit? <laughs> like, I mean... Could be. I mean, you know, I said Despero has issues. Ooh, Batman. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's literally been psychology books written about that, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, some more tear-jicking things here. Uh, you know, at the funeral, besides the obvious Justice League... So it's interesting. Uh, uh, almost the entire Justice League, uh, our league, the JLI, are in black suits. The only exception would be Marsh Manhunter and Batman. But then you get a whole bunch of colorful characters in costume. You get Wonder Woman. You get Superman. You get Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. You get Raven and Nightwing and Starfire and Cyborg, who I didn't really know the Titans knew Mr. Miracle, but uh, you get Dr. Fate. You get Green Arrow. Booster Gold, who's actually, Booster Gold's in black. uh, And you get Gypsy as well. Now, this is what got me, was I didn't catch this the first time I read this. I just caught it the second time. On page 14, it shows the the funeral, and they're sort of in the distance. In the foreground, though, uh, just on the far right-hand side, just in a solid color and shadow, and unless you're looking, you don't even notice is High Father, Mr. Miracle's dad. And his, it was just, his real dad, too. Yeah. Not his fake, I swapped my kid's dad. Right. Well, he's also Mr. Miracle's a robot, so it's not really his real dad. But anyway, I, know. <laughs> I missed that the first time. So when I caught it the second time, I mean, again, burst out in tears, just weeping uncontrollably. So powerful. Um, you know, Booster is, you know, he's hustling. He's trying to recruit people at the funeral. He asks Gypsy, of all people. And they, it's interesting, they didn't address this in the issue, and I thought they would, but Gypsy's entire family was murdered the same day Mr. Miracle died. Yeah, they, she goes through a lot, you know. Yeah. Like, and I think there's also the it was missing kind of missing for this episode. I mean, we really had to see Booster, Guy, Beetle, Fire Ice. Those are the real like kind of core mm-hmm. of the Justice League team that you know aren't the like part-timers like Batman, you know, right. or or have their own books elsewhere. And so it is their kind of emotional story. But yeah, like Gypsy and, you know, the kind of like getting into the fact that her parents and her, her, her family were just murdered by Despero, you know, and, and then the, that kind of like paternal sort of like relationship she has with uh, John isn't right. explored at all. So that was, it's a, it's a weird tone, especially since like, you know, she's also like, yeah, give me your card. Right. To, to boost her. So, you know, so maybe that's her, her way of dealing with the grief. What it really is, it's foreshadowing for the upcoming Justice League quarterly book. Mm-hmm. And so, and they just felt like they had to get it in there. It is an awkward moment for it to have happened. Again, not so much because it's the Mr. Miracle's funeral. I mean, that all works because they call him out, they call Booster out on it. But just the fact that she should be planning three other funerals right now. So, yeah. yeah. More tears for me. Uh, you mentioned, and we've already talked a little bit about the scene with, with Guy and Ice. It's a lot of it is Adam's artwork. Uh, yeah. Basically, what happens here, guys, is Guy shows up to talk to Ice, and he says, "Hey, I'm here because I I wanted to check on you. I know you would take this really hard. And if you read what he's saying, he's not talking about her at all. He's talking about himself and Yo, what yeah, he's going totally. through. And the art of her, I mean, you mentioned earlier, she's absolutely beautiful. I mean, there's a foreground image of her and all these cool shadows. And then the last panel is the one that gets me, and I'm getting misty right now here, folks. I'm sorry. Where Guy's talking about what it feels like, and she's got her head on his shoulder, and he's saying, you know, oh, I bet you feel like this. The guy's saying, I bet you feel like this. I bet you feel like this. I bet you feel like this. And really, he's talking about himself. And she's just like, yeah, something like that. And she's just there for him. Yeah. And uh, it's powerful. Yes. Because he needs it. <laughs> it yeah. is, it's, but, you know, again, this is like... 
those are rare things we see of Guy Gardner in this series, and and it's nice to see a much more humanizing. He did have like a power battery bro up in his face at one point, so oh yeah, <laughs> you know, gotta give cut the guy some slack. I mean, there's all kinds of excuses, and we've talked about it at great lengths. I mean, he's still a raging jerk, though, and that's part of the reason I think yeah. why this hits home so much is for such a raging jerk to care. And that's one yeah. thing that we've seen time and time again in the series now is that guy, regardless of all his bluster, when it comes down to his teammates, he is always there, which is uh, sort of interesting yeah. for such a complete jerk. Yeah. Then uh, there's so much like foresight in these books that they don't even know about in a retcon sense. Max, you know, he's talking about they've got to bolster the league. They've got to build up the team. And he talks about, you know, this time we lost Scott. Next time it might be Beetle or Ice or Marsha Manhunter. Like, wow. All of them did die in DC Comics over the next few years and stayed dead for quite a while. Like, Beetle obviously dies in, you know, well, if you choose to accept that it ever happened. Ice dies for years. Marsha Manhunter dies for a couple years. So it's it's just like, wow, it's, it's almost like someone went through the playbook and said, well, you know, they said oh, these people should die. Maybe they should. Even Superman suggests that Bill Beetle might be the next. So it's yeah. almost like everyone's got it out for Beetle. You know, I wonder if they might have been playing towards that at some point. But at the same time, too, and so this is where, like, part of this didn't quite hit me as much is that the dying superhero has been so used so much that and this is the this is the the disadvantage of not having read this back in the day yeah this issue and like i read it now with like you know hundreds more books under my belt read than when i read 38 and 39 mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah know, 37 38 and 39 and so you know like my in my entire view is different so like a, a superhero funeral is like Oh, well, you know, they come back, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, we had lost Bucky. We had lost Barry Allen. We'd lost Captain Marvel. We'd lost Jean Grey, who knows how many times. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was about it. You know, we hadn't lost Superman. uh, And then the revolving door of of the afterlife at DC hadn't started yet. Right. and it, but again, even though we knew that Mister Miracle wasn't dead, it's it's down to the writing. It's down to yeah. believing that these characters are suffering emotionally, whether he's dead or not. It's really not the issue. It's that these characters are suffering emotionally, and that's what's so powerful. And yeah. I, I talked about sort of the future, and you know, supposedly Blue Beetle, you know, dies at the hands of, of uh, Maxwell Lord down the line. And there's certainly things in this series that could point to Max being, you know, retconning. You could read and go, oh, I see where that pinpoints and leads to infinite crisis this is a moment that i feel like contradicts infinite crisis which would be where max says again he says i swear to you i'll disband this team rather than see another of my friends die and his moments like this in this page with max where you see the heroic side of max that i just i feel like it proves the infinite crisis retcon doesn't really work and not that i'm fighting it it's comics it's fine whatever but it's just moments like this where i go yeah okay no max would not have put a bullet in beetle's head sorry on um yeah it's just powerful stuff yeah yeah i I don't like to think about that well i uh all in all for me uh an absolutely incredible issue to revisit uh again i've read it three times the last few days i have cried my eyes out each time obviously dr g is dead inside uh and that's okay but uh mostly dead (laughs) what so overall though would you say this was a great issue a good issue a fair issue where how would you feel about it well i think it's a great issue actually it didn't hit for me but that's only because i I kind of i've had like some changing tastes over time i I think i I would say but like i see like some very solid writing you know like when i when i made the comments of it being like la law it was more like because la law was a good show it was it (laughs) really was i watched it every week (laughs) i had like complex characters this was good like 
TV writing in in comics. Okay. At yeah. The time. Yeah. And I so, like, and this was in, uh, one of those. Like, this is the very special episode of Justice League International, <laughs> where they talk about the death of a friend, but opened with a nice, really like four color, and I mean like colorful, bombastic superhero fight, and then like shifts gears and, and does it well. I think it does it well. I think that like drop off cliff in the middle of the book where you have like this, all this like high octane, like Despero, like Roland Emmerich moment. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, and now we're, this is, this is an indie film. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about. So yeah, no, I think that's, it was really well done. Like in that sense. And, and I, Adam Hughes, I think this is a really good, like early Adam Hughes. Yeah. But I, I love his work. I mean, he's amazing. Amazing. So I think, you know, him, Definitely, I added to my love of uh, fire and ice <laughs> in the later issues with through when he was on it. Well, and and think this is some really peak Hughes storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean the the pan now the panel layout would have been given, but as far as just yeah. really fleshing it out further, he did a great job. Uh, you know, it's it's a stunning piece. Now, by the way, I should I should mention this is the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so I am legally obligated to mention. Yes, Aquaman does appear here. I didn't mention him earlier, but there is a there is one panel with Aquaman, so I have to mention that. So, but <laughs> again, I, I love this. This issue, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And if we were rating issues, which we're not, but this would be really hard for me to beat uh, at this point uh, in in the JLI canon, so, uh, at least on the drama side. Obviously, the hu- there's some amazing humor highs that are so high, but the drama side, this is unbelievable. So. Uh, I do have one last comment on the letters page. There's a section in the letters page that gives a, a responding to a question by a couple friends of the show. Uh, oh. Jay Jones and Roy Cleary, or as he's called here, Roy Shoulders Cleary of the Silver and Gold Podcast Network, uh, who do shows about uh, Captain Adam and Booster Gold and Wild Dog and all kinds of characters. Uh, they actually get a shout out here. And it, like they'd asked about the meaning of life and they asked when we'd see Lobo again. And they have you know, some banter there with Kevin Dooley. But it's great. It's always fun to see friends mentioned in an old letters page. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish I'd written into the comics more. <laughs> they got mentioned a few times in this series, so good on them. Yeah. All right, this is the part uh, now where we're going to make an incredibly uncomfortable transition, especially for this issue, to the... Quahaha Award. This is where we're supposed to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. I don't know if that's going to be possible right now, but we're going to give it a shot. Both myself and Dr. G are going to pick one moment, and one will be co- uh, will be awarded the coveted Boaha Award. Uh, now, Dr. G, uh, I only found one or two humorous bits in the whole issue, so good luck to you. What is your pick for the Boaha Award? Uh, so I would have to give it to you. Oh my God, this was hard. <laughs> it's a very like intense action and then very sad. Mm-hmm. I think it's got to be the opening panel of even as bad of straights that they're in. Beatles at least try to talk his way out of it. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it was definitely felt on brand. It's going to go a little dark from after that, but like it, it definitely was one of the two standouts I I had, I, I remember from, and actually the other one being from Beatle again, were it, but yeah, no, not a lot of funny bits. 
<laughs> in this one. So yeah, uh, Despero is holding Beetle, and he says, "Silence, Nat." And uh, Beetle goes, uh, "You you don't want to talk about this, do you? That that's Beetle, but I do have an uncle, Nat. If you and he starts choking him, that uh, <laughs> it, it is actually my pick as well. So it is nah. exactly the same. So because there's really nothing else to choose from in this comic. So uh, congratulations to Beetle and Despero. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Oh, so wow. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I did forget to mention this earlier. You know, there is sort of an interesting through line of dealing with death and also the other side, the first half of the issue, and, and this may be intentional, I don't know, but of Despero, it's, it's sort of his own death as well. It's also sort of his own rebirth. So there's sort of a, a spiritual death, rebirth, death kind of thing going on here. And I, I, I don't know that that was accidental. That probably was planned together. Oh, definitely. And I think also, too, like if you look at Despero's in his thought balloons that we see, he craves an ending. That's true. Yeah, you're right. He's this mutant outcast amongst his own people and, and has become this, like, you know, space despot, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because of it. And But is always this sort of outcast who's alone and, you know, suffered a great deal is at least what is implied in the in the text of the, of the issue. So, like, it's weird. Like, he craves death. Doesn't really get it, but does get it in a way, like, as I'm, I'm sure we will see in some future. I don't know. I, I might be magical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, an oracle. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, like, so yeah, it's a definitely an interesting, like, parallel to, you know, then afterwards, like, hey, this guy didn't want death, and now we have to deal with him not being there, and we're all very sad. It's almost like his hate is his religion. You know, he's, yeah. he's saying, I bless you in the name of hate, I destroy you. And he goes on about how his hate has, has a has a expression and things like that. So yeah, it's it's all kind of uh, the circle of life. It's all there. So <laughs> the circle Oof. of life. Yes. Well, this was very powerful. So Doctor G, I I have to ask you a favor. Um, there are literally hundreds of used Kleenex all over the floor from someone crying hysterically and just tossing the Kleenex aside. I, I'm not really sure who did that, and I'm it's, I'm pretty sure it was not me. Is all I'm saying. Anyway, oh, regardless, <laughs> would you mind hanging around here for a bit and kind of cleaning up this mess? Oh, I see how that is. Okay, fine, fine. I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll clean up. I, I won't do it efficiently. Okay, <laughs> that that's a fair trade off. I, I I appreciate that, sir. Now, don't worry, Doctor G. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 16th issue of Justice League Europe. <laughs> In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men, monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars.
world on fire. An All-Star Squadron podcast. Join your hosts, Billy D. And Herman, as we take a deep dive into the seminal DC Comics series created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. We'll be covering the series issue by issue, spotlighting our favorite characters. And talking about the historical tie-ins as well. So join us every month in A World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 16. And instead of our usual intro music, today we have a special treat. A custom soundtrack specifically for this issue, composed and performed by today's guest. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now this guest has been a longtime friend to the Fire and Water Podcast Network as well as an uber nerd when it comes to comic books. His favorite day of the week used to be Wednesdays, new comic book day of course, but now that DC Comics distributes on Tuesdays, it's actually causing him some kind of personal internal conflict. <laughs> this guest is also disgustingly talented. He's an actor, a film composer, a writer, he's got great hair, and like 10 million other things going for him. One of his claims to fame is that he once appeared in a movie scene with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Black Adam himself. But more importantly, this guest appeared on a TV show with Fanola Flanagan. Yes, that's right, from the Ewok Adventure. We are talking about Sindel and Mace's mom. Caravan of Courage, Mama represents. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Lucien Desar. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Lucien. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Mm. Sorry, I was just finishing my extreme baguette. Ooh, fromage. <laughs> While it's in the jacuzzi, 
it is an honor to be on this show. I've listened to this podcast for so many years, years and years and years. And to be on the show is like when I was a kid and my favorite show was Knight Rider. And one day I got to sit in the actual kit car. So I am sitting in the car right now. Awesome. <laughs> Well, first off, I applaud you for liking Knight Rider. Then second, I have to question your taste for being such a fan of this show. I mean, really? You could find better things to listen to. But hey, I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're looking for extreme, this is absolutely the issue to do it with, sir. <laughs> the extreme 90s. That's right. So uh, let me ask you, Lucien. We, we have known each other through Facebook and comments and all these things for, for years now. But one of the conversations we've never had, uh, we've talked a lot about action figures and all kinds of other stuff, but we've never talked about your personal origin story with the JLI. How did you find this series? What made you fall in love with it? Well, when this issue came out, I was really distracted with school things. It wasn't until a few years later and my roommate in the dorms was picking up the series. I always liked the farm team of superheroes, you know, the, the ones that are kind of slightly loserish, but, you know, <laughs> you really love them. Right. Uh, and they always make the dumbest decisions sometimes. So that was always fun. I'm feeling uh, targeted. I'm feeling seen at the moment. Um, maybe that's why you like our podcast, because similar reasons. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's absolutely, you're, you're dead on. Uh, it, they are lovable losers. It really is what it, uh, it sums them up pretty well. And the Europe team, especially. I mean, they had so many struggles, so many things going against them, uh, you know, because it's hard to be the second team. I mean, I, I don't know if I, if I was in the DC universe, as much as I like the characters in the Europe team, I don't know, I'd, I'd be a little scared to be on that team simply because every Everyone looks to the uh, the America team to be the premier team, right? Well, yeah. And you have all the characters like Wally West just irritates the heck out of me because he's always like, nothing's good for us. You know, we're not the great team and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and you'll see a great example of this in this issue as well, where he's complaining about it. He is extremely obnoxious in this episode or issue, I should say. And, you know, he's, he's either being obnoxious or being a total perv. So I guess we can't win because, you know, over in his own book, he's not like this. So it just happens to be in, you know, the perfect perfect formula of Justice League Europe. Exactly, exactly. Well, why don't we get into this, folks? This is Justice League Europe number 16 from DC Comics, cover dated July 1990, on the shelves June 5th, 1990. Cover price $1, and the cover is by Bart Sears. You want to describe the cover for us, Lucian? Oh my goodness. This cover, wow. This, is, <laughs> this cover has so much going on. It has the extremists in the background laughing and with like giant grins, with images of Moscow, basically turn into a wasteland. In the foreground is Lord Havoc staring at the reader, taking over the majority of the cover with the reflection showing all of the Justice League seemingly dead or terminated as it's stamped across the Justice League Europe title with the subtitle, With Extreme Prejudice! It's absolutely essential that in any 90s comic book cover, you have to have the letter X used. And bonus, <laughs> it's extreme! I also would like to say that Tracer on the right has a very 90s, late 80s hairstyle, and he's looking like he's about to burst into a Warren song. <laughs> She's my cherry pie. <laughs> and, and you know what, what I like best about this cover is below the DC logo issue number and that $1 price tag is Metamorpho and Captain Adams flexing in a Hansen style, which gives me the theory that the artist was an Arnold Schwarzenegger fan because of those poses and terminated written on the cover. <laughs> you know, I also like this pose because it makes me not so upset because, you know, there's a little bit of humor amongst all this chaos and death because it's a really violent cover if you look at it 
this whole story is gruesome and bloody and, yeah, not much to laugh at in it. And you're right. That does kind of bring a little bit of levity. That quarter box is pretty cute. I'm glad you mentioned it, actually, because uh, the quarter box idea was being used pretty widely at DC at this point. And we've seen it on JLA a few times now. But for Justice League Europe, it I, it's actually very, very hit or miss. And I went through and did one of those cover galleries and looked at all the images at once. And it started on issue 13, and then it doesn't come back till 16. But then in the future, uh, we only see it a few more times. Altogether, we'll only see the corner box about eight times. You know, sometimes it's this metamorpho and Captain Adam. Sometimes it's elongated man and Rocket Red together, which is pretty funny. Sometimes it's Flash and Power Girl. But yeah, it doesn't happen very often. And uh, it does bring some ne- much needed laughter. There's only a couple funny things in this issue, totally. So I like it. Uh, and I had not thought about the Hans and Franz thing. That's hilarious and perfectly timed. And it, does the editor explain what they want on the cover or is it just the artist just comes about and comes up with the idea? That's a good question. Uh, a lot of times it, it depends on the book individually. Like some books, you know, especially during the early 80s, they actually had a artist on staff who they would design the covers. Like they do a breakdown sort of what they wanted to look like and hand it off to the artist. And there you had sort of their layout and what that design would be. At this point, uh, I don't know if Giffen was doing any sort of breakdowns for the covers or whether it was up to Sears. I really don't know. Usually the cover copy, though, came from the editors. I, oh, I know that okay. much. So the, okay. the cover, the Terminator with Extreme Prejudice, I'm going to, you know, Wild Guess probably came from Kevin Dooley or Andy Helfer. I don't know that for sure. That's just a guess. But uh, it could be. Now, it's funny when you say Extreme. I'm, I am used to seeing uh, Extreme with a larger size X because it just feels like that's that's appropriate for this era, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, the Extreme is, it's not that giant yet. You know, it's 1990. So wait another year or two and then you can have the holographic covers. And <laughs> I guess they're two years ahead. That's right. Yeah, because Extreme yeah. Studios doesn't get created until 92. Now, I, I do love the reflection in here. And folks, this will all be on the image gallery, but the reflection of the heroes in Lord Havoc's mask is really clever. I mean, I think it's really well done how you can see the heroes being, it's extremely busy, but it, I think it's a neat idea. I love that concept. But apparently Crimson Fox didn't merit the group because she didn't make the cover. Why is that? I don't know, but I sit there for a long time counting and looking at all the hash lines going, is she buried in there somewhere? I don't see her. And the weird thing is, I mean, it's so busy with this reflection. You don't even see the bodies. Like the first thing you see is basically his eyes. And then the the, the goofballs in the back, the extremists, that they, they kind of look like, you know, fraternity guys. <laughs> yeah. You're, well, you're right. He's got that Warren hairstyle. I'm waiting for Tawny Katane to do like a flip across Lord Havoc's mask or something. But <laughs> yeah, Dr. Diehard is definitely just chuckling it up. They do look like frat boys. And it's interesting. You saw the eyes in the extremists first. I actually see the reflection first, and it's like it's almost like one of those tricky eye paintings where you got to move your eyes to like. I have to really work to see Lord Havoc's face. Uh, all I can see is the reflection. Yeah, it, well, everybody, you got to see it. It's, yeah. it's so it's so bizarre. They're gonna see it. Don't worry. They'll be on the. Right. They'll, they'll be looking at <laughs> the image gallery. <laughs> well, why don't we get inside the book? So, plot and breakdowns by Keith Geffen, script by Gerard Jones, penciler is Bart Sears, inker is Randy Elliott, different inker this time around, letter Bob LePan, colorist Gene D'Angelo assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. The title of the uh, issue is The Extremist Vector Part 2, Conquest. You want to start us off? Yes, I suppose. You know, Rob, he wrote all the breakdowns, the synopsis, so I just read off it, but you made me actually do work, so... Oh, you're talking about when you go on his show? Yeah, that's a cushy gig. I put people to work on this show. (laughs) They do all kinds of stuff. I'm like, you want to be on this show? You got to put in the effort. (laughs) And the plot of this is very intricate. I mean, it's, it's, it's super complex. So here we go. Previously on Justice League Europe, number 15. 
The silver sorceress returned to her home world, which was demolished by the extremists. They detect the sorceress and attack her and steal her spell to get to Earth. They zap to Earth and beat up Blue Jay and beat the snot out of Metamorpho and send him back to Paris in the transporter tube as a message. Issue 16 opens with Wally West, all hot-headed and heavy, wanting to jump up in the tubes to beat up whomever beat up Metamorpho. Captain Adam is about to do whatever it takes with fist action to prevent Wally to go into the tubes. Captain Adam tells everyone not to use the tubes because it's a trap. Flash over to Moscow, which is blown up and in complete destruction. The extremists are enjoying the havoc they are doing. A brigade of Rocket Reds attack, which is so cool, by the way. Alas, <laughs> we are beat to a pulp. Some of the, the Rocket Reds pilots being blown out of their suits, they are destroyed in an extreme fashion. The League flies a plane, essentially, to Moscow, which makes Wally West ask, can't this thing go any faster? And Captain Adam replying, button it, West. And then whispering to Dimitri, can't this thing go any faster? <laughs> and Dimitri saying, the throttle is open full of already. In kind of like a Star Trek fashion. Right. <laughs> I'm like, giving her all she's got. Wait, that's Scottish. Never mind. Ignore that. The throttle is open full already. I don't even know if that's Scottish either. I'm terrible. The Wessels. The Wessels. That's what <laughs> the we should vessels. say. Wally Vest. Complains, <laughs> complains how slow the hand-me-down plane is flying as the junior auxiliary of the real Justice League. Back in Moscow, Blue Jay, bleeding and close to death, crawls into the transport tube to Paris, where he gets hit in the chest with a baseball bat by a quick-thinking Catherine Colbert and a cat attack. I'll take it from here. So having realized her mistake, Catherine Colbert and Sue try to make Blue Jay comfortable. He tells the story of his world, Angor. Blue Jay once belonged to a superhero team from Angor known as the Assemblers, alongside Wangina, Silver Sorceress, Johnny Quick, and the Bowman. Get it? Assemblers? That's clever. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the villains of that world got organized around common goals and called themselves the Extremists. The Extremists took control of Angor's nuclear arsenal, threatening to destroy the planet. Four Assemblers went looking for help and came to Earth, ended up fighting the Justice League of America in issue number 87 from 1971. Failing to recruit the JLA, the four heroes returned to Angor only to find the world decimated. The extremists had launched the nuclear weapons, reducing their entire civilization to rubble. Now, back in the present day in Moscow, Justice League Europe arrives. Things don't start very well when Dream Slayer disintegrates the entire JLA shuttle. The battle ensues. The League holds their own for a short while until Dream Slayer has basically had enough. With one massive blast, he takes out the entire League. Then the villain Dr. Diehard discovers that our Earth also has nuclear weapons, just like Angor. The extremists are overjoyed, and they fly away to their next destination, leaving behind a ruined Moscow and defeated Justice League. To be continued. Da -da -da -da. Man, so big stuff, big stuff going on. So what'd you think, man? Wow. First of all, the extreme 1990s. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're listening to this now, break open your Pepsi clear. <laughs> And uh, get your listen. acid wash jeans <laughs> exactly. And uh, this issue is the pedal to the metal and doesn't let go. It's like how I felt about drinking three jolt colas to cram for an exam back then. Oh my gosh, <laughs> which I don't recommend, it was horrible. I actually fell asleep while taking the exam because I <laughs> crammed for three nights, but that's another story. Well, I, I well, hold on, I gotta tell mine then. I stayed up all night drinking sweet tea, and uh, you were in Florida, so you get me. I yeah. drank a whole pitcher of sweet tea all night long to stay up cramming for mine. And I also slept through my final, so... <laughs> 
And the plot of the story arc is really complex. I had to like break it down with an outline just to understand what was going on. Characters are transporting back and forth between these tubes and the extremists just dominate against the junior auxiliary of the real Justice League. There is, <laughs> and it's a really bloody issue. I mean, oh. the Rocket Reds are beheaded. Literally, they're beheaded. It's nasty. If you're a fan of Rocket Reds, this is not an issue for you because you'll what? be upset. I love the, that's the thing. Like, I love yeah. the Rocket Reds. I read those original uh, Green Lantern issues where Kilowog helped to put together the Rocket Reds and everything. I mean, yep. it broke my heart to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have a chance. They were gone within seconds. Ugh. And then then these extremists are like, hey, there's this thing called nuclear weapons. And they're just like, yeah, let's party. So <laughs> trying to get the uh, nuclear weapons. And, you know, it, it's abysmal. This issue is abysmal. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's really uh, heartbreaking. I, I, I had one more thing to say about the Rocket Reds, though, before we forget. Poor Rocket Red number five he actually got yeah. killed twice um <laughs> <laughs> dr diehard he's the first one like when they first show up and dr diehard's like what are these guys and he uses magnetism to rip apart the suit you can clearly say see the five on the chest oh, then yeah, later right. then later on dream slayer teleports another rocket red to another dimension and that one clearly is also rocket red number five who's apparently got a suit back i guess I, either there's some no prize in there about dr dream uh diehard putting this guy back together or there's two rocket red number fives which doesn't it make could a be a sense one either. five could be a 15. It could be, but it doesn't look like it to me. I'm just trying to help them. You're trying to no prize it. That's true. Yeah. No, I appreciate the effort. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, so we, we were picking on Wally earlier, right? So like, yep. I do have to say, though, his commitment to Rex is pretty admirable. Like, Wally is ready to go. I mean, he is pissed off that somebody beat up his buddy Rex. And that's, I mean, again, he's irritating this issue, but that's that's commendable. I like that. And Adam is about to beat them up. And I'm like, yeah, get him. I'm not a <laughs> Wally West fan at all. I don't know why. But really? I'm in the Barry Allen camp. I know I'm like, you know, of the smaller amount of people that like Barry Allen, but. All these years I've been waiting to talk to you and that that's over now. Huh? Oh, well. <laughs> that's it. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. All right. So I do have a question for you. Since we're talking about Captain Adam and you're, you're, yep. you're taking his side here. Yep. Was he right? not to use the tubes because last issue the extremists they they sent rex through obviously it was yep. a lure yep. but they immediately go out in the streets of moscow they don't wait by the tubes you know and the jla still come over there so walk this through with me that what was captain adam right to prohibit the tubes being used i mean i could see it from his point of view because he doesn't know what's going on on the other side but as us as the reader mean knowing what's going on on the other side i think they could have just went through the tubes and the end result was still going to be the same. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel almost like the writer maybe lost track of the thread because later they do send Rex through the tubes with like right. no big deal. So it it just it just struck me as a little odd. Like there was a big deal about it, and then suddenly there it like, it created this whole plot point of them having to fly and yada yada yada. Yeah, and then Rex just uses the tube anyway. Right. And why did they have to be on the plane in the first place? I mean, there's no plot reason for it other than it added a few panels. Right. Yeah. You mentioned the back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, which is interesting. From um, from a Doctor Who perspective, classic Doctor Who, uh, there's notoriously episode number three, usually a four, was always picked on because it was essentially just main characters switching places. It was like a, basically a pad. <laughs> it, was, it was always padding. It was always like, okay, we're just killing time because we got to pad this thing out to four episodes. And so this feels a little bit like this because, you know, Blue Jay's in Russia. Then they're in Europe. Well, then they go to Europe and Blue Jay goes back to Russia. I mean, goes, goes to Europe. They're flipping places exactly like you said. 
And then different uh, dimensions too, right? In issue 15, Blue Jay basically, uh, is it Blue Jay or is it Silver Sorceress? Yeah, Silver, Silver Sorceress. Silver Sorceress is on the other world. And then they, they extremists follow her path to this world. Right. And they zap to Earth and then beat up Blue Jay and beat the snot out of Metamorpho. Yeah. Yes. So you're, and you're right, because then Metamorpho goes back to Europe and then back to Russia. Yeah, it's a whole lot of just going back and forth, back and forth. Hmm. So originally they advertised this story as three issues. Then they advertised it as four issues. And now they're advertising it as five issues. You know, I'm not saying I'm not enjoying it, but did they pad it out? I don't know. Uh, Me me thinks they did. There could be something to it. Let's see what else. Oh, I felt so bad for Rosa. Rosa, who lost her sister, the Russian embassy worker whose sister's dead. And she transports Blue Jay. And there's this really touching moment. I'll make sure it's on 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 the gallery where she transports Blue Jay back home. And it's just so sad. She's standing there after he's gone on and uh, what does she say she says for some people there is still being time and it's so sad it's just it's heartbreaking oh yeah she's crying and she's upset she's looking down very sad and then he gets zapped and gets hit in the head with a baseball bat oh we're going to talk more about that in a minute (laughs) (laughs) so the the flashback with the with the assemblers which by the way just as a reminder i mentioned the last episode yes the uh, wangina blue jay silver sorceress were all created as analogs of the avengers way back in the 70s and the extremists are also analogs of of marvel bad guys you know we've got dr doom is lord havoc we've got dr octopus is gorgon we've got dr diehard is magneto Tracer is Sabretooth. Dreamslayer is Dormammu. So uh, you've got this Marvel DC thing on, on here. So with the assemblers, I do like in the flashback how Blue Jay is really upset about it. He says, you know, he's talking about the assemblers. He's like, we always won. We had fun. We spent a lot of time posing for the press. And while we were posing, our enemies were having meetings. And it's like, wow, that's really powerful on how the heroes were so busy enjoying the limelight that the bad guys got organized. That's just surprising. Yeah, and well, I'm not going to talk about what's happening, you know, at the the finale, two issues after this, but it doesn't make sense what happens. Uh oh, I haven't read ahead in 30 years, so. Oh, you haven't? Oh, no. well, well, it's a shocker. It's uh, issue number what is it? 18. It gets uh, it gets real. Let's just say that. All right, I'm, I remember a couple things, uh, so we'll just see. I, I won't say any more there, but we'll we'll see where it goes from there. Now, I do have a question for you. So, page 13. Yep. All right, this is the flashback where he's yep. talking about everything I just read, and we get a panel. The bottom left-hand panel is all of the extremists beyond just the five that we know. So these are obviously analogs that Bart Sears came up with for other Marvel characters. So I'm wondering who else do you see in there that might be a Marvel analog? Um, I'm putting you on the spot here. I I can't tell. Really? Okay. I got at least one. The big guy in the center, that's got to be like his version of Juggernaut. Oh, that's a Juggernaut. Uh, I do think in front of Juggernaut, I think that's probably supposed to be like with the winged helmet. I'm guessing that's probably like a Loki analog would be my guess. That would be Loki. Yep. And then right behind the Cyclops guy, there's like a dude with a giant head. And I don't know. I was like, maybe the leader. I don't know. That's the Hulk villain with the big head. That's exactly. Oh, it's the Watcher. Oh, it could be. It could very well be. Uh, that's a good thought. So, folks, uh, this panel will also be on the gallery. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on who you think these other extremists are. Uh, what else? Uh, Dream Slayer, crazy powerful dude. Ridiculously. Yeah, powerful. like with a look, he takes, he just, I mean, he just disintegrates the JLA shuttle. Boom. Just like that. By the way, that's two Justice League shuttles lost within just a couple of months. One was destroyed by Despero. One's destroyed by Dream Slayer. So note to self, avoid bad guys whose names start with D. Not good for the shuttles. That's going to be expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then Dream Slayer takes out the whole Justice League with one shot as well. Just absolutely crazy. 
Yeah, they're completely like decimated in like one frame. Yeah, so I'm interested to see how they're going to take out that guy because that's in the long run because that's not going to be an easy fight. Uh, I do like some of the pairings too. I liked seeing Crimson Fox go up against Tracer. That was good. It was a good fight. Uh, Captain Adam versus Lord Havoc was well matched. And Elongated Man versus Gorgon. Uh, those are all really well paired. I got to assume when they were developing these bad guys, they tried to think of who could fight who. And uh, all those worked really well for me. Yeah. And it, and it, well, it happens so quick though. I mean, it's literally what, like two pages. Yeah. And they're, they're gone. Yeah, the fight's short. I just, uh, that's, that's a fair point. And maybe I'm giving it more credit than I should. Really, I mean, it's, it, I guess you're right. It's really pretty much just other than Havoc and Captain Adam, it's really just one panel for each of those. But uh, I, I I don't know, it stuck with me, so. I liked it. I liked yeah. it. And and that the very final panel is is the to be continued. It's just, uh, it's very sad. But I just, the flames and poor Wally looking up going, come back, wait. <laughs> well, I actually, I like that part. Yeah, oh, it's true. You hate Wally. That's a good point. <laughs> but Rocket Red's there and that's sad. So. Yeah, well, I love me some rock. Oh, and, and the other Rocket Reds, I mean, that is just why wow. I, I got to assume the Rocket Red Brigade gets rebuilt because I'm sure they appear again at some point with this original classic armor. Because this, this original classic armor, even though I love Dimitri's armor, the original classic armor is my favorite. I love the boxy yep. Rocket Red look. They just look awesome. They're like a pseudo Transformers look to them from the 80s. Totally. Boxes yeah. fighting boxes. I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah. I also got to mention one last thing. Tracer. Uh, when After they've murdered everybody, this dude, he's so sick. He's, just, he's sitting there pulling the wings uh, off of Blue Jay, which is gross. But then after they murder everybody and the extremists are leaving, he's doing handstands. Like, Tracer is walking in handstand formation, basically looking just like our buddy Matt Ev, who's been a guest on the show a couple times. But he's literally walking in handstands like he's just having a blast. It just demonstrates how much fun he's having, and it's just, it adds to the grotesqueness. And so, a question for you, is this too extreme for a Justice League comic? Are they too grotesquely happy? What do you think? Uh... Well, I'm kind of clouded because I know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they're perfect the way they're they're they are the way okay. that what they're representing is perfect what what it is. But everybody's you're gonna have to wait until issue 18 to find out what really is going on. Oh my gosh, I gotta wait three months. Ugh. All right, <laughs> fine. So want to talk about the art? Yes. So uh, let's play art critic. So. The initial page with Wally and Captain Adam about to go at it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just really well drawn and really brings the reader into the story. I mean, like, bam, right in the beginning, you have Wally about to duke it out with Captain Adam. And, you know, and then the next panel, they're, they're like pushing him back. Yeah, I love this first page. A couple different things. First off, I love the energy coming out of Captain Adam's eyes coming shooting off in each direction that's like such a i don't know if that's a bart sears thing or everyone draws captain adam that way but whenever i see that i think of bart sears drawing captain adam and i just absolutely love that i think it's just like a trademark thing i i i don't know makes brings me joy the other thing is uh well two things first off um the inking is really solid i like this inker uh randy elliott he did a really nice job with bart sears work it's it's not muddy at all the inking lines are all very clear you can see what's going on sometimes with bart sears the lines get a little crazy i think ellie did a really nice job controlling the i lines think it en- enhanced it actually yeah yeah i think it looks really good and then I can't not talk about the elephant in the room, uh, which is Power Girl's breasts. Okay. <laughs> they are, they, they've always been this way, but it's just, they're ridiculously large. Ridiculously large. I actually Googled the other day, breasts as big as your head. Because I was just curious what, first of all, if they exist in reality and what that cup size is. And sure enough, there are many women who feel they, that that is their size and that's uh, what they have to deal with in life. So in, in doing this research, I found that that cup size is typically size G 
Uh, I've never even heard of that. I asked my wife, she should, she'd never heard of that cup size either. So apparently uh, that is what Power Girl's size would be. And so I guess it does exist in reality, but uh, it looks rather ridiculous here at this point. It's really disproportionate to like everything. I mean, her head is like tiny compared to the rest of her body. Yeah, it's a, there's a problem. I, mean, I realize it all goes back to Wally Wood. It's his fault, but still, it's, uh, they could rein it in here, I think. Do you think maybe it's just because of the pose? Because, I mean, Wally's smaller, you know, and it's he's like in the foreground. So maybe they're trying to do like a camera effect. Well, like the wide Wally angle sh- lens or a fisheye lens. Or effect well, or Wally would actually be bigger then because he's closer. So which oh, implies yeah. that she's even bigger because she's in the background. So that 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 argument doesn't hold there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I was trying to defend the, the artist. I, I still love it. It's a style choice and that's fine. You know, it's yeah. it's fine. And again, it, it goes back to the core of the character's history so but it's it, you just can't help but not notice and be like oh you kind of roll your eyes a bit what else you got so over on page 12 i really like the hair on Catherine colbert it, i mean it's huge you know big hair <laughs> and like that cat i mean he, that cat you could just <laughs> like he looks like he's either rabid or scrawny i mean i love the cat the cat makes it the cat is a hot mess the cat is absolutely a mess uh, it I got to assume that Bill the Cat was a big inspiration there. I mean, if you just look at I have a Bill the Cat stuffed animal here in my office, and I'm looking at that. Oh, yeah. The, the, both of them, the right eye, uh, you know, perspective, our perspective, the left eye, but like the cat's right eye itself is actually all squinty. The other one's big. The ears are flopped up. The hair's a mess. I mean, it just, it looks a lot. The tongue is out. It looks a lot like Bill the Cat. <laughs> uh, it's not the You're right. right. It says act. No, it does say ack. Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice that. So, okay, there we go. There's that. The thing I realized just last month, and I was so embarrassed uh, when I figured it out, was that the cat is totally a nod to Supergirl's cat, Streaky the Cat. Oh, yeah. Power Girl has a cat because she's the, you know, Earth to equivalent or I guess, you know, post-crisis equivalent, whatever. Uh, and so that's where the cat idea came from. I never realized it until doing research for last episode. I was like, oh my gosh. So I do, yeah. I do, I do love. You mentioned Catherine Colbert's hair. I think part of the reason her hair is so large, besides the fact that it was the late '80s, early '90s, is to differentiate her from Sue, because both her and Sue have dark black hair, and they're in scenes a lot together because they're the administrators of the of the league, and they're also, by the way, the smartest people on the team. Um, that is without a doubt true. And uh, so I think that's part of the reason he makes her hair so large is to clearly differentiate between the two. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't help that they're wearing almost identical coloring too. Yeah, you think both had to be green this episode? Really? Could one of them couldn't have been in blue or something? You're absolutely red, right about that. Yeah, a red power suit or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do love that Catherine beat Blue Jay to you know just beat the crap out of him with the baseball bat. I absolutely love that. <laughs> then going over to page twenty, the illustration of Dream Slayer is just crazy with his body being translucent. You know, I did not even notice that the first couple times I read this issue until I was going, looking at your notes. I was cheating. I looked ahead at your notes and it mentioned. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I looked. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, you can see his skeleton through there. That is so freaky. And it takes up over a different panel. The character is like overlapping on the other panel. too. Yeah, he's breaking the borders of the pay, uh, of the panel. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that's I freaky. Like that. That, that's going to bother me now. Those uh, creepy bones. Ugh. Like a jello man. Yeah, uh, we've probably given Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Lewis nightmares. He was really bothered by Dream Slayer's uh, physique last issue. Uh, issue. This is going <laughs> to bother him even more. Sorry, Chris. 
I wanted to uh, talk about the final page. Sure. What do you got? Well, the final page, I really like the background of Russia. You know, you could tell the artists spent a lot of time with the background with the destruction of St. Petersburg Square, I think. I don't know much about Moscow. I'm sorry for <laughs> Moscow listeners. I didn't hire you as a, as a Moscow expert. Don't worry. You're in the clear. It's Yeah, that's that traditional architectural style, though, with like the bulbous uh, thing from the Kremlin or whatever. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, you look at that and you definitely recognize that as typical uh, Russian architecture. So yeah, it's, it looks great. Well, I shouldn't say it looks great because it's devastation and horrific, but it, it's very effective. Let's put it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So all in all, it's a, it's a beautiful issue. Uh, I think Bart Sears did a great job art, uh, with the penciling. I think the inker, Randy Elliott, did a really nice job on the inking. I think it's a solid. You know, the question is, did the issue progress the story enough or was it a filler? What do you think? Oh, it definitely, I, I don't know if it's, this is called the, the second act or the third act, but it, it definitely, you know, it's the down point of the hero's journey cycle in, in a storyline. You're, you're not wrong about that. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So usually if, I, oh gosh, I should remember this. I think the hero is on the, on the down and out at the end of the second act, if I remember right, which, means, right. That, yeah. which means we've got three more issues to, for act three then. So that's a, that's a pretty long act three. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it, I can imagine reading this for the first time, you know, back in 1990, drinking the Pepsi clear and <laughs> like, all right, what, how are they going to get out of this? I just know I was so excited because Justice League Europe was my book. At this point, I still wasn't reading Justice League America on a regular basis. I don't, I don't, I didn't start reading Justice oh. League America until issue 42 on a regular basis. That's when I can't I be your friend. I can't be your friend. I'm sorry. I went back and bought all the back issues. In fact, I bought them. I think I'm up to four times I bought these stupid issues already it's all of them now so at this point the europe was my league and i was so excited i'm like oh they got a real set of villains you know things just got real and i had no clue these were all marvel analogs i did not know that till just a couple years ago i had no clue i just thought the extremists were badass you know and so 90s and i was so excited for this yeah well i mean mentioning it issues 18 it's going to be you're going to see what the truth is. Okay. I think I remember some of it, but I don't want to say it on the air. So maybe, yeah. maybe all fair. Yeah. No air spoilers. Will... <laughs> I don't spoil anything from like, I don't know how many years ago. Anything. Right. 30 <laughs> years ago. Every, everyone knows anyway. So, but oh, well. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's issue 16. Why don't we go into our next segment? Uh, what something I like to call character spotlight. This is where Lucian is going to help us out and share some thoughts about one of the characters from this issue. Not necessarily an origin recap, but that may be part of it. But either way, it's about the characters and where they were in the DC Universe, either just before joining the JLI or what kind of impact the JLI had on their careers. So uh, why don't you, Lucian, tell us a little bit about Dimitri, the Rocket Red. Yes, Dimitri, Rocket Red. <laughs> Rocket Red number four, a.k.a. Dimitri Pushkin, was born in Russia. He was a Ukrainian soldier who joined the Rocket Red Brigade. He had a clash with the Justice League in Siberia, and his front tooth was knocked out by Black Canary, which was a harbinger of things to come. For those of you who've been listening to the show for a long time, go back and listen to that episode. And I told you guys at that moment that this was an important moment and to remember it. There we go. He then joins Justice League International. His armor gets destroyed by Lobo and gets a more powerful one built on Popclips. What is great is he gets out of the superhero business. He goes back to Ukraine after JLI disbands and spends more time with his wife, Belina, and his two children, Misha and Tasha. We only see him once more when he attends the funeral of Sue Dibney in Identity Crisis. 
So we, we don't talk about that funeral here on the show because that never happened, but I get what you're going for there. So I appreciate that. No, it's, um, that was great. I, I, I adore Dimitri. I mean, how can you not love this guy, right? I, yeah, I mean, he, he can be anybody, really, because he's, he's in this great suit. And the reason why he's a superhero is, is because of, you know, his inner strength more than uh, his actual superpowers. Right. And he, he's just got, like, a big heart, you know? He's like Brian Blessed, you know? Like, when they draw, especially when Bart Sears draws him, he's larger than life. He's just, you imagine he's out drinking and having a great time with his friends and laughing and clapping everyone on the back and being like, my, my comrade, kind of thing, you know? Um, now, there's... There's another piece, unfortunately, I have to add to this. And again, we can ignore this, too. But unfortunately, uh, Dimitri did die. Uh, Wait, he did die? Yeah. No, in my world, he's he's happy in Florida or something with his wife. Well, I don't know if Florida's the place to go. But yeah, so <laughs> apparently, you know, if we just stop everything in Identity Crisis, then we're good. So that we can stop right before Identity Crisis, then Sue doesn't die. Dimitri doesn't die in the OMAC project. We can ignore all of that. So that's what we'll do. We'll just say, you know what? We'll stop with um, formerly known as the Justice League. That's where. That's what we'll do. Right there. How's that? Let's have a moment of silence for Dimitri. <sighs> Unfortunately, everyone's podcast player has that truncate silence feature, so they don't even know we had him. We don't even know we're going to have a moment of silence. <laughs> Do they even have action figures for Dimitri? They don't. Uh, the, well, okay, I take that back. So they're, I think they're, I should know this, right? Uh, and we are planning an episode on action figures uh, in oh. the somewhat distant future, but I it's going to happen. So there. Uh, there. I believe there is a Dimitri Rocket Red for the Justice League uh, Unlimited line. So like the cart animated series line. Oh, I want to yeah. say they did like a, a, one of those fan favorite lines or whatever. Uh, and I want to say there's a Dimitri figure there, but it's a much smaller scale. Uh, the other Rocket red figure you can buy which is in like the larger scale like the justice league uh international figures based on kevin mcguire that is one of the later rocket reds uh that uh-huh. is um i can't remember which i think that's gavril or something or one of the one of the other because you know there's a bunch of rocket reds it's the fancier armor not the classic either it's not either the original armor and it's not the apocalyptic armor either so it's a little bit disappointing i want the full size like dc direct classic armor or at least the the op- apocalyptic armor that's what i would want yeah, and then they can make the whole brigade. All they have to do is put a different number on it. Exactly. I'd buy them all. Exactly. I bought 13 Aquaman figures. I'm a sucker. So <laughs> Don't ask about the Firestorm figures, though. I That number never stops growing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> For years, all I needed was a superpowers figure. Then they started making more. Ugh. Anyway. All right. Well, uh, we have talked about the issue. We have talked about Rocket Red. Now it is time to get into the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it be something fantastic, something shocking, something dramatic, something funny, awe-inspiring, whatever. Both myself and Lucien will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Lucien, you're the guest. Uh, Why don't you give us your suggestion first? My favorite moment was the very first panel where Wally West is about to duke it out with Captain Adam, because I really want Adam to punch him. Oh, I would love that so much. So your so let me get this right. Your favorite thing in the issue is something that didn't even happen, but you just like it because it almost happened. Yes, it was a near it was a near hit. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, my favorite moment is actually a hit. 
I, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with this. The last couple issues, I picked like big sort of like splashy appearance moments, like when the bad guy showed up and stuff. This time out, I actually went for the funny bit. I couldn't resist when Blue Jay shows up in the embassy and Catherine Colbert whacks him with the baseball bat. And then the ugly, stanky <laughs> cat comes out of nowhere and lands on Blue Jay's head and just starts attacking him. So it's Catherine and the cat together attacking Blue Jay. It just cracked my junk up because this poor guy, he's been through hell. You know, he's he's been uh, he's been beat up by the the extremists. He's been in Russia. He's been held prisoner. He gets caught by the Russians again. You know, the extremists, all this stuff. Finally, gets to, to the Justice League just to get beat up by a regular human and a cat, and it just cracks me up. So. <laughs> That's what I want to give the One Punch Award to. So this is the point where we have to decide which one gets the award, whether it's Lucian's figment of his imagination, something that doesn't even have in the comic, <laughs> or mine where something amazing happens. So uh, what, what's your opinion, Lucian? Um, no, I really like mine because I really <laughs> want us to get beat up. And you know, if I talk about it enough, maybe someone will be inspired to write that story. <laughs> Uh, you're not going to give, huh? <laughs> but I do like the cat. I'm a sucker for ugly cats like that. It is Bill the Cat. Smelly cat, even, probably. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. All right, tell you what. We will call it a draw, because I was really anticipating you would just cave and crumble. Like All right, I cave. I cave. Well, you didn't have to. Stand, look at you, coward. Stand your ground. Oh, my gosh. I no, I can't. I mean, the cat's great. Folks, you gotta <laughs> love the cat. It's wonderful. All right, fine. We will give the award to Catherine Colbert and the cat. Congratulations. Yay. You have won the coveted One Punch Award. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment in the issue. All right, now, Lucian, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind staying here for just a little bit and talking with Blue Jay? You know, now that we're moving uh, into the whole extreme 1990s, we're going to need Blue Jay to start wearing that brown jacket of the 90s Avengers. I mean, assemblers. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, we w- could do that. Yeah. Would you, would you mind talking to him about that? Yeah, and he could be wearing some jams while he's at it. Exactly. And he could get like a lightsaber like Black Knight. And he could be totally like the 1990s event, uh, assemblers. Uh, that'd be perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be hanging out in the lounge playing some uh, MC Hammer and uh, we'll get back to you soon. <laughs> perfect. I appreciate that. Hi, Shag. Sorry. You told me not to call this emergency hotline for Justice League Europe unless it was a vital emergency. Well, This sort of is. We forgot to mention the soundtrack for this episode. I made it a bit Russian meets late 80s. I felt inspired to compose it after looking at the cover. Hope it was alright. I do soundtracks for indie films and just did one for Michael Bailey's for a show, Crisis to Crisis. Hey, I hope it was alright. I ate all the brie at the JLE fridge. What? No, go away. What? Sorry, the cat is trying to bite my leg. Ouch! For some reason. Ouch! Ouch! Now, don't worry, I will bring you back at the end of the show. And folks, while Lucian's taking care of this for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All 
All right, now let's get into your feedback. Remember, get out on the social medias. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Remember, when you're posting comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. We're going to be pulling your comments from our website, email, social media, things like that. Just pulling bits and pieces. Because if I were to try and cover all of your feedback, it would take the entire rest of the month. So, we're going to be talking about our most recent episode featuring Justice League of America number 40 with my guest Michael Bailey and Justice League Europe number 14 with my guest Dr. Chris Lewis. First up is Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does podcasts such as Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus writes in to say, The extremist as analogs of Marvel villains revealed on JLI podcast? Mind blown. Rocking in silence in a dark room. <laughs> Thanks, Gus. And I got to tell you, I felt the exact same way when I found that out a couple years ago. So I'm right there with you. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. They have the Power Girl blog called Symbol Pending. They write in to say, personally, I quite like the new Power Girl costume. Though I came in with the 2009 Power Girl series, so the Boo Window costume will always be my number one choice for Kara. Personally, I really like the earring she wears with the whole thing. And like you said, with her previously swimsuit white costume, it seems weird that this is the one that Wally reacts to. Though I find the whole exchange really weird with Power Girl acting much like her angry version from her original all-star comic appearance. Then they go on to say, the art of the extremist is so 90s, looking a lot like X-Men of the era. I didn't really make the connection with their Marvel equivalents until you pointed it out. Though truth be told, I've only just connected that Blue Jay was a Hank Pym equivalent this way around. I'd say that they're a critique of the 90s extreme heroes and villains, but I'm guessing it's really too soon for it to be a thing yet. Then they go on to say, in my important research for Stinky the Cat, I've come across the most important Justice League America appearance. One panel of Stanley and his monster. (laughs) They shared that panel on Twitter, and said, I expect proper coverage when the time comes. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that simple pending. You heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, ah, sorry, but I think the blahaha moment should have been when Guy put a bubble around Despero's head when he was about to whammy Gypsy. Yeah, that was a pretty good moment, Liz. I gotta agree. That was pretty funny. Then Liz goes on to say, ah, the bunny ear bit on Silver Source's outfit was odd. As for her midsection cut, maybe she does a thousand sit-ups a night. And then Liz says, yeah, I stole that line from Birds of Prey when Gail Simone first brought in the Huntress. Hey, Liz, you know what? We both stole from the same source. And I made a joke about having an innie or an outie belly button, and I also stole that from Gail Simone's run on <laughs> Birds of Prey. So I guess we're even. Then heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, Superman 3 Movie Minute, and much more. Chris writes in to say, this was a great issue. And of course, continue that tonal shift from the last issue. I don't recall if I remembered Mr. Miracle was just a robot replacement or not, but honestly, it doesn't matter, because the characters react as if this is all real. In a way, it's kind of meta, since comic characters constantly mourn the death of friends and teammates, only for them to miraculously, pun intended, return just a few months later. But this one actually was pre-planned for those who read the JLI special. Then it goes on to say Adam Hughes' art is on fire, proving he can handle action as well as fun character moments. As for the Just League Europe issue, Chris Lewis is quite witty. Yes, yes he was. Then he says the images shared showing Silver Sorceress in the obliterated series almost look Maguire-esque. Maybe it's the gif and layout showing through. Oh, and I know I have brought this up before, but it will never fail to bug me that this lady doesn't have one stitch of silver on her costume. Oh, well, somebody's going to address that for you, Chris. Just hold tight. Then he says, Dimitri's wife's leg. Yeah, that's just not right. She should have that looked at. <laughs> I know Bart Sears was going for sexy, but it reads as broken. Thank goodness they slammed that door. When I was in college, the comic shop I worked at had some penthouse comics behind the counter, and Sears drew some of those. So I guess he did get his shot at romance comics? Kinda? 
Then Chris says, Power Girl's new costume? Yeah, sorry, I don't like it. It's too generic. It looks like it comes from a standard team uniform that everyone should be wearing a variation of. But she's the only one who got the memo. I think it's better than her next outfit, but that's not saying much. Uh, you know, there are quite a few comments about Power Girl's costume, some in favor, a lot opposed. But, you know, for me, I still dig the yellow and white costume. I think it looks great. And I'm sorry if you guys don't feel the same. It's not my fault that you're just broken inside. All right, then Chris Lewis uh, from the Stormium Arc podcast, and of course our guest in the last episode, did respond to Chris Franklin about Silver Sorceress. Chris Lewis says, The Sorceress hair is definitely silver, and I'm glad that she was named for that rather than the color of her costume. The Khaki Conjurer? The Ekru Enchantress? The Mousy Mage? Not really doing it for me, to be honest. Martin Gray also chimed in about her hair as well. Thanks, everybody. Then Doug Van Diver chimed in to say, Is Transistor Miracle's deal that he's skipping like a vinyl record with a scratch? Is that what we're meant to get? Well, I suppose that ought to be passed tense in light of the fiery end of this JLA issue. Vaya con Dios, Scott Bot. We hardly knew you, and you were one analog kind of replicant. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Uh, following up on Doug, Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems, and Super Problems. Jason writes, I had the impression that being caught in the downpour, the embassy sprinkler system in JLA number 37 shorted the Mr. Miracle robot out, and he malfunctioned ever since. Or was he faulty from the very beginning? Hmm. That's a good question, Jason. I'm not sure, but Tim Price thinks he has an answer. Tim Price, of course, does the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl to Huntress podcast. Tim says, interesting idea. In that issue, the Scott bot, love that, said the same line to each person to introduce himself, which showed repeating himself and doesn't know what Mr. Miracle should know. So I always assumed it was flaky from the very beginning. All good observations, everybody. Then we heard from Josh Romano, who says, another fine episode, Shag. I've noticed that there's a tendency for your highly educated people to be involved in the show. Between Dr. Schwartz-Levine and Dr. Lewis, you've had quite a lot of schooling on this podcast. I'm in the last year of a doctorate program myself, clearly Bwahaha is for refined audiences. <laughs> We've had a few other doctors on the show as well, Josh, so I'm just pretty much making up for my own lack of intelligence by getting smarter guests. Then we heard from Gene Hendricks from the Two True Freaks Network. He does shows such as Hammer Strikes and more. Gene says, with the whole discussion about how to pronounce Despero in the new JLA review, in the comments, all I could think of was that it sounds like he's Despero, cousin of Ross Perot. <laughs> yes, that's what I took away from this episode. Well, that and Karen needs a vacuum pump to get into that costume. <laughs> they were from Siskoid from the Maritime Canadian Embassy and part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, Oh Hot More Not, and more. Siskoid says, Chris Lewis is such a funny guest that it's not even funny, except it is. Very funny. <laughs> yeah, Chris was great. He absolutely was. He was a big hit with everybody, I think. They were from Jason Lady again. Jason says, this issue of the JLE kind of showed us why she's the Silver Sorceress. This is the first time we saw her hair, and it turns out it's silver. Still a strange costume and code name, but at least the art team threw that in there and maybe try and explain it. Then Jason says, I'm not a fan of this Power Girl costume, mostly because the limitations of the coloring process makes the yellow in the costume the same as the yellow of her hair. I like the contrast her other costumes provide. Then he goes on to say, the comparison of Despero plowing through the JLA as being very similar to Doomsday plowing through the latter version of the JLA is apt, to the point that when the Doomsday story came around, I was thinking, this again? They did this already. I'm tired of seeing Guy, Fire, Ice, and Beetle get beat up. The difference is Doomsday wrecking the league happened as a mostly adjunct event to a Superman story. The beatdown dealt with by a brand new out-of-nowhere villain with no previous ties to the league. 
What made the Despero story more effective was the team had a pass with this bad guy and he had a huge grudge to settle with them. Kind of like the Wrath of Khan. Ooh, that's a good analogy. I like that, Jason. They were from Evertom de Carmo from the Brazilian Embassy. Evertom says, I love the fact that every time the Beatle participates in action somewhere, he has to point out that he's participating in action. <laughs> and his mind is second only to Martian Manoner. How cool is that? Then he says, I would say that a guy who invents a gun that stuns people because he doesn't want to kill them is smarter than a guy who doesn't want to kill people and keeps throwing bat-shaped boomerang knives. <laughs> that is a very fair point, Evertom. We heard from Mike Dynas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, this issue is a real roller coaster of emotions for me. Despero yelling, I'm burning! I'm burning! After fire strafes him was intense. Adam Hughes was hitting it out of the park at this point, and every page has something for me to just sit and stare at. So good. Regarding Just League Europe, he says, put me down as a person who never knew the extremists as Marvel analogs until this episode. To heck with subtext, I don't even get text sometimes. I like the Squadron Supreme, Marvel's analog of DC. I like the Crime Syndicate, DC's analog of themselves, but I never really liked or got the Champions of Angor or the Extremists. They just seem bland. And Gorgon is just icky. You know, Mike, I've been saying there's something about the Extremists. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something that just doesn't quite put them in the league with some of those other characters. Yeah. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast and the Batgirl of Hunters podcast. Tim says, I remember when I first read these issues and being totally on board with how intense the stories were. Not because I was tired of the humor, but rather it kept you on your toes. You can't take anything for granted with these series, which is my bag. These characters and creators can do serious or silly equally well, and I welcome it. Yay! Then he says, from Jean's memory of Mars, I originally took it as he described it, that his wife mentally touched and reached him to bestow the gift. But now, I think the whole scene was triggered by Despero, and John's subconscious did the rest, including remembering the Mayavana, realizing it might be important. Hey, John has the most powerful mind in the league! <laughs> then Tim says, I thought about the question, do you mind having Marvel analogs in DC books. Well, let's turn that around. Do you mind having DC analogs in Marvel books? Marvel sure doesn't seem to mind. They had a handful of Squadron Supreme series. Somebody should do a podcast about that. <laughs> and then uh, Hyperion was a member of the Avengers during the Jonathan Hickman run. And there's that recent Heroes Reborn event, DC Homage. For me, it's usually simple. Just do good stories, like the Terrifics. Then he says, Kara's most important feature is what's missing, a cape. Nothing to get in the way of Giffen's butt shots. Um... <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Then we heard from Diablo Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, including a Martian Manhunter podcast called Idlehead of Diablo, Justice League Detroit blog, and much more. Now, Frank wrote quite a bit, as he tends to do. So, I'm just going to get into some of this. Uh, he says, It isn't until page 13 when we get to Gypsy's parents when all of a sudden Buffy's mom is dead on the couch, and we're all stunned to realize we're now in a legit horror story. Come on, guys. It's just Gypsy. You hated her. People were actively rooting for the demise of this teenage girl in the previous volume. And this is essentially an example of an 80s slasher movie. Why should anyone care? Because craft. That's why. Because Adam Hughes drew the ever-loving hell out of these issues. And when the Giffen plotted pages came back to Demetrius, he scripted it less like a camp version of Craven's Last Hunt and more like the real thing. If anything, all that not-so-great bwa-ha-ha serves to heighten the horror because of the intrusion. Everyone's thinking, this is still a joke, right? Those mangled corpses and Despero's sadistic glee suggest otherwise. Neither the JLI nor the League as a whole is an appropriate vehicle for horror, and yet here it is, and it works. Because everyone committed to the bit. 
The guy who's supposed to be drawing the mugging comedians like McGuire is giving us a noir lighting and a persuasive Lynchian dread. This isn't supposed to be happening, especially here, but it is, and it unsettles the reader. It's also why this is a great Martian Manhunter story. And he goes on quite a bit about Martian Manhunter. You should go out to the website and read those comments. They're definitely worthwhile. Then he says, the battle with the League takes up most of the issue, but they're the guest stars. They're cannon fodder. They bookended by the stars of this title, Jean and Gypsy. It's kind of an ill-fitting JLI arc, but it's the perfect continuation of the late life Detroit League's narrative, of which these two are not just members, but survivors. The JLI is not a place of heaving sobs and aching loss and whispered vows, so it's hosting a Detroit Requiem that is at once one of the best stories in the run, while being one of the most egregious deviations from the expectations for the title. Wow, that's deep, Frank. Then he goes on to say, uh, Power Girl's yellow and white costume was unique and distinctive in the same way as Bart Sears' Hero Alliance designs and pretty much the whole of the Ultraverse. Both died ignominious deaths. It's all champions, villains, and vigilantes in the end. Somewhat admirable and not a little hubristic for fanboys and minor talents to think that they're going to do something different to stand apart from established properties. Man, so many people bagging on Power Girl's costume. I like it. You heard from Craig Fletcher. He says, I recently started listening to the JLI podcast. I became obsessed with finding the trade so I can read along with you. Now, I'm 33, so I'm as old as this book. Uh, I found the first two big books, Born Again and Around the World, but I can't seem to find a third volume. Do you happen to know if they made a third one or if there's plans to make a third one? Anything would help. I love the book, and I love when the second-tier characters get the spotlight. I responded to Craig via email, but in case anyone else is wondering, you can buy the first two volumes. They're the giant collected versions. They basically make up the first omnibus. And then the best thing is to go buy the second omnibus, which is like a massive thousand-page tome, but that's pretty much where it picks up from there. Then we heard from Santiago Martin Morone, uh, quite possibly from our Argentina embassy, but I'm not 100% sure. You'll understand in just a moment, though. Santiago wrote in, I'm really enjoying your podcast. And then he sent me a picture of a comic book from Argentina, issue number 18 of the Argentina equivalent of Justice League International. It's the Injustice League cover. He says, check out the colors from my Argentina edition. Super odd. All the other issues have the right colors. Yeah, the colors here are crazy. Uh, Major Disaster is yellow and pink. Multiman's wearing yellow. Everyone's skin is purple, by the way. Cluemaster's costume's a deep purple. Big Sur is yellow and orange. Uh, the Clock King is actually uh, kind of blue and green like he's supposed to be, but everything else is just bonkers coloring. It's really, really interesting. So uh, he goes on to say, back in the 80s, in issue number 8, there was a note that announced that the no- issues number 9 through 13 of the original series would not be published. So yeah, they just skipped issues 9 through 13 of JLI. So they went directly to number 14, and a summary of what happens in the unpublished numbers was made. Uh, from there, the numbering suffered a lag till it was canceled issue number 49. So sad because it was so close to the end of the Keith Giffen and J.M. DiMatteis run. Thank you so much for sharing this comic from another country. Again, the coloring is so strange. You're absolutely right, Santiago. Thanks for writing in. Then we heard from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy and his own Too Dangerous for Girl blog. Martin says, Did John Jones ever feel upset or disturbed by B's fire powers? Or did her flame's greenness stop his psychological problem from kicking in? You know, Martin... I got to imagine it was addressed somewhere in these comics, but I've been thinking back, and at this point I've read, I don't know, 100 different comics in preparation for this podcast, whether it's tie-ins or the issues. I honestly don't remember an occasion, but there probably is one, and I'm just not thinking about it. Then Martin says, for the first time, Shag, yes, the first time ever, I disagree with you. (gasps) He says, I'm with Michael. I love the plot of a blue beetle getting out of shape. It's exactly the sort of thing that fits into a book about superheroes who are more like real people than gods. Don't you miss the days, for example, when Spider-Man would duck out of a fight because he had a head cold? 
you know, Martin, you know, in rereading it, maybe I will enjoy that plot thread more. It's just my memory of it. Uh, I, I didn't like the direction they took Blue Beetle, but hey, you know what? I'm here and we're going to find out. And he says, oh, the new Power Girl costume is just hideous. Yellow and white do not go together. And that's not gold. The tones are too flat and the design is awful. It looks like an aerobics outfit far more than Dinah's Olivia Newton-John look ever did. And if we can't have the original, I much prefer the majestic Orion's Descendant blue, red, and white look with the headband and the mini cape. All PG revamps need a cape, darling. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. You know, once again, disagreeing with me, but, you know, it's you, so I don't really mind. Then he says, I think the extremists never became a thing at DC because they're rubbish. Also, they're so powerful and vicious that they're too much for your average DC comic. And I never realized there are Marvel comic analogs either. Thanks, Martin. Then we're here from Jose Hernandez, who says, about J.M. DiMatteis setting up Gypsy with her family and then killing them. I felt pretty bad when Giffen killed the Injustice League in Suicide Squad. But again, if anyone has the right to do it, it's the writer who set them up. Did you hear that, Jeff Johns? Ooh, major zing, Jose. But not unwarranted. I'll give you that. All right, folks. uh, Great collection of feedback. Now we're going to move on to the folks who shared on their social media timeline, Facebook and Twitter. It's a long list of names. However, these folks showed their support and helped promote the show. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. This time we're looking at nearly 70 names. So here's to everyone who helped promote the last episode by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. You can be on this list next month. All you got to do is share and retweet. Our thanks go out to Al Girding, Andre TFG, Baby Skeletor, Between the Pages blog, Billy from the Bat Pod, Billy Delicious, Canadian Geek, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Changing Shades, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Addicts, Damian Droud Whiter, Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine, Frederica Hernandez, Football Lover, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Jason R. Lady, Jason Sandberg, Jeffrey Brown, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Con L, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Liz Ann Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Mark Lax, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Matthew Chad, Max Reads Comics, Michael Bailey, Michael Crane. Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dinus, Nuno Duarte, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, a Craig Saunders Vigilante Podcast, <laughs> Rob Kelly and his Digest Cast, Mountain Comics, and Super Friends for All Mankind accounts, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Chaparak, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Steve Gibbons, Storia Mark, Super Lad Kid, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, Tim Price and the Outcasters, the Batman and the Outsiders podcast treasury comics warlord thanos podcast and willie yarborough my thanks to all of you for your support of the jli podcast your feedback is such a critical part of the show and this community of jli fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic now if forgotten or missed anyone i am terribly sorry it was probably the fault of michael bailey or chris lewis just let me know and i'll be sure to include you on the next episode Please keep those cards and letters coming, everybody, at our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post. That is where most of the activity is going on. Then over on Facebook, you can find us as JLI Podcast or Justice League International, blah, ha, ha, podcast. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast, and email is podcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Michael Bailey and Dr. Chris Lewis for appearing in the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we'll see if we can bring Dr. G and Lucian together in the same embassy. And action! It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network.
1974, four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, and Paul Stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see. Over the next 40 plus years, the music, the makeup, the merchandise, and the loyal fan base have propelled KISS to one of rock and roll's elite groups. With KISS heading down their end of the road tour, we thought we would start our journey. Turn it up to 10 because we love it loud. Right Between the Eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band, KISS. We will be covering all eras of KISS with the various albums, studio, live, and compilations, plus album mashups and more we will also cover solo and band projects from all members past and present while also looking at the various bands that have opened for kiss as well not to mention all of the fun items in the kiss catalog tv appearances long form videos merchandise comic books come on the list goes on and on coming in late may early june 2021 to a podcast platform near you follow us on twitter at rbte podcast Loud. I want to hear it loud. Right between the eyes. All right, folks, we are back from break. And yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought together both Dr. G and Lucian together for us. This is awesome. Uh, Dr. G, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the show. It's always wonderful to catch up with you. And uh, this was a, a really special episode, and I'm glad you were on it. So uh, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find more of you on the interwebs? All right. So if you want to follow me, you can follow me at pulp to pixel on Instagram and on Twitter. So that's pulp the number two and pixel. You can also follow me on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel podcast page, as well as our main page at www.pulptopixel.com. You can also hashtag Pulp to Pixel. Uh, pretty much that'll pull up any any of the stuff we're working on from podcast to artwork. Definitely check out the artwork. I'm slowly making it's making my way to not just talking about comics, but actually making comics. So Woo-hoo! you can follow along on my journey there. Uh, uh, definitely on places like Instagram. That's fantastic. Awesome. Definitely check those out, folks. Watching your art evolve has just been so fascinating. And uh, I'm so excited for you. Just in one more creative outlet for you. And, and quite honestly, the, the most exciting part of that is it's finally stopped you from modeling uh, old, uh, obsolete TV show characters into a role-playing game format. So uh, <laughs> that's been a win. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It has. I, I'm like, I only have so much creative juices. I can't spend it on this. But every, right. every now and then, the Palladium role-playing game books, they call to me. I, I hear the whisper as I pass by, and I'm like, just one character, just one character. <laughs> I can't tell you, folks, how many times I've just been randomly tagged on Twitter being like, here's our The Misfits of Science done in the Palladium role-playing game style. I'm like, where, where is this coming from? What did you do? <laughs> I think there was grading I was trying to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for appearing on this episode. It has been a real blast catching up. Uh, thank you again for having me. 
Now, Lucian, dude, finally, we finally had our chance to chat. This has been oh, fast. so fun. Ah, dude, I'm so glad you finally were on the show. It's been years in the making. So why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internets? Oh, I'm I'm on the internet. Um, I can be found at desar.com, D-E-S-A-R.com. It's my last name. I had that domain for a very long time. When I originally registered it, I actually had to drive to the ISP to register it in person. <laughs> I fill out a form and everything, a paper form. I, I, I can also be found on YouTube where my wife and I have our web series, Brooklyn, and I'm on Twitter and the old FB. Awesome, man. Well, there'll be links to all those in the show notes as well, folks. So thanks again, Lucian. This has been a real, real blast, and I'm so glad we finally got together. Thank you. It was a, it was a dream come true to be on the show. I really enjoyed it, even though you made me do more work than Rob did. <laughs> Well, if it was a dream come true, all I can say is set your sights higher, son. All right. (laughs) That's going to do it, folks. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 41 and Justice League Europe number 17. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Folks, it's not a trick question. Every single episode, I don't answer that question. So you really should know what to expect at this point. Anyway, you're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. As always, thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Dr. G. And I'm Lucian. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?